Yo, welcome to Tuesdays with Jakey, another bonus episode. This is Fridays with Friends, and I'm your host, Jakey Roxoff, Jakey Gump the Run of Fool, Jake Sufnarowski, and I'm here with one of my best friends in the whole world. I'm at Toby Morse's house, and I'm at his kitchen table where he records the One Life, One Chance podcast, and now I'm in the interviewer seat, and Toby is in the guest seat. Toby, thank you for welcoming me into your home yet again. Thanks for having me. This is the first time anybody sat in my chair. It's weird seeing you sitting in my chair. I know it must be a little weird, right? Because yeah. usually you're looking at someone who's less handsome than you, and now you're looking across at me. I'm gonna see if I have to change the foam on that mic after you're done. I'm sorry. I like this red <laughs> foam. It makes me feel like Axl Rose. Um, Why he has red ones? Yeah. Up okay. until the other day, uh, yesterday actually, I had not seen Toby Morse in person in almost a year. I had not seen. Correct. I was last in your presence uh, on June 17th when I flew out here on the way to get my motorcycle when I fled New York City. Yeah. That was fucking two years ago? That Coming was a, a year ago. That next, was oh yeah, yeah, June yeah, yeah. 17th. And we've been friends. We've known each other since 1994. But really around 2003 or four, we started becoming really good friends when I started coming out to Los Angeles a lot. And I don't think, I don't think we'd gone six months without seeing each other since 2004, much less almost an entire year. Yeah, and I definitely met you back in the day at the wetlands. Um, and then knowing you throughout the years and then with uh, yeah, Rocks Off and then doing a bunch of our shows, the boat shows, Irving Plaza's, Gramercy's. H2O's 10th anniversary at the Knitting Factory. In which All the Knitting Factory shows, yeah. They tried to get us to pay $10,000 to let you film the show and I, w- I got that waived by trickery. And then you ended up putting Thank out you. a DVD that said live from the Knitting Factory on it and I saw it for sale just a few blocks south at J&R Music World and I was like, if the owner of the Knitting Factory finds out I let this happen without getting that $10,000 fee, I'll be in a lot of trouble, but guess what? Wow. I didn't care. We didn't release that officially. That was a bootleg. We never released that. It was in for sale at J&R Music World. Wow, yeah. Someone must have filmed that and put it out. <laughs> I never knew that. That's crazy. It might have been you. You didn't hey. release it as a DVD. No, thanks for waiving that fee. How'd so- you do that? Uh, I'm magic, man. I yeah. fucking I do whatever I can to get bands over on the venues that I work with. I'm always, you know that. I'm yeah, because you're, you're a musician side. yourself, so you pre- you know the, uh, the the behind the scenes and everything about being in, in the band. Yeah. For real. Yeah, yeah. No, you do. And and that's why I love you because you understand you you're not some shady uh, uh promoter. You're somebody that comes from the scene and loves the music and the bands that you uh, promote. Right. And I did it because I wanted to give cool bands cool chances to play cool shows. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the time before that that I saw you was weird because I had been spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. I bought a motorcycle out here, spent a lot of time with you, your son, Max, my little nephew, your wife, Moon. You hosted me in your house many, many times. Yes. And uh, then I went crazy, which I've talked about on my podcast. And I ended up locked in a hotel room in Las Vegas trying to kill myself. And then Peter Shapiro, who owns the Brooklyn Bowl, used to own the wetlands, flew out to Vegas, basically rescued me. And he was instructed by all my other friends to bring me back to New York City. In one piece. In one piece. And I said, no, I wanted to come to L.A. And I said, I wanna, I'm want i going to go to Noah's house for a night and then Toby's house. And all of my friends who know you and know of our relationship, they trusted me in the hands of Noah and Toby. Um, and then you basically, you, you Moon came and picked me up from, to- from Noah's house. We all went to the movies at the Grove and saw yeah. Hustlers. And I was in a shocked state, obviously. And yeah, then you, yeah, you, you, you were very delicate. Delicate would be shattered. the word. Yeah, it was shattered. You're shattered. It was weird seeing I held you. I remember and hugging you, started shaking and crying. It was, it was heavy times, man. <laughs> kind of crying right now, thinking about it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a very heavy moment, and you were very fragile. Yeah. 
This is the first time I've talked about this. On, uh, this really? The f- first time I talked about this in front of anybody. I talk about it a wow. lot on my own podcast, and I, I kind of laugh it off. But what I learned when I was in the, in the treatment center in Florida, what I learned is that a lot of times people who've dealt with a lot of trauma, the way they one of their defense mechanisms is humor. So okay. when I talk about this by myself, I just kind of laugh and say, oh, the time I was trying to kill myself. But yeah. I really was. And I came here and you and Moon, really, you guys took care of me. Yes. And you made sure I got on the plane to Florida to go to this treatment center. And that was scary because we're like, this motherfucker better have gotten on that plane. Because we, we didn't know. You were, you were, nobody's holding your hand on that, were they? You were by yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you that, s- for you to be like so in pieces, but also be able to follow through with that and make it happen, like you really wanted help. You know what I'm saying? Like, because you could just been like turned around, jumped on a plane, went back to Vegas or so. What do we know? Right. So that whole time, we're like, I think I even texted your friend. Like, you heard from him? You heard, like, we want to make sure you made it there because once you get there, you can't have a phone and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So like, fuck. I mean, how was that flight for you getting on that flight by yourself? Um, to, I can't even imagine. Uh, Did you was, drink on that flight? Yeah, yeah, I did. Wow. Um, I because I was so nervous. Yeah, and, and it was just to calm my nerves, really. And I knew there was someone that was meeting me. I was picked up on the other side in Orlando when I got off the plane, and and they took me and they took me to this treatment center, and it was really scary because I I did, I was in really bad shape. The police kicked down my door in Vegas. Yeah, I remember that. And what happened there was the police, the police, should have taken me to a mental institution right then, but they. They kicked me out of the Cosmopolitan and I was supposed they were like, you know, do you need help? Because they knew I was trying to kill myself. They got the calls. That's why they broke the door down. And do they legally have to don't they have to bring you to get help so you're safe? Don't in, in California, they call it a 5150 okay. an involuntary psychiatric lockup. But they I tricked them into believing that I would go home that night. And the police put me in the back of a cab and told the cab driver, take him directly to the airport. Don't take him anywhere else. And then as soon as we pull out of the Cosmopolitan, I told the cab driver to take me to the Hard Rock. And I was still planning on killing myself, even though I knew Peter Shapiro was going to be on the next flight to Vegas to get me. And I was like, I'm not going to let him get me. And I went to the Hard Rock that night. I told the cab driver, take me to the Hard Rock. I gave him $100. I went to the Hard Rock and I was like, I had been on the 46th floor at the Cosmopolitan. And I was like, I'm going to jump off the balcony. That was my plan to kill myself. And uh, when I got to the Hard Rock, I was like, I need the highest floor you have, please. And I like gave the check-in lady $100. And she was wow. like, the highest room we have, the highest floor we have available is the fourth floor. And I remember oh, being what? so deflated. So I was like, I can't kill myself from the fourth floor. I already fell off a six-story building when I was 15 years old. Wow. My first ever trip to New York. So I was like, four stories isn't going to do it. And, uh, and then Peter Shapiro got there. The next morning at like 6 a.m. And then we had a nice day in Vegas, took me out for a nice lunch. I kind of calmed down, went to Noah Chernin's house, then to your house. And then you were the guys who put me, you know, on the plane. Not yeah. literally, but. Were there thoughts that once you get to the airport, you weren't going to do it? Once I got to the airport in, in LA. L.A. to fly to Florida. Yeah, I was nervous just about what the whole thing was going to entail. Cause, so when so I, this is not knowing. When I got to L.A., I spent the first night at Noah's house. I woke up in the morning. He put me on the phone with the people at Music Cares. They were fucking amazing. Yeah. They talked to me for like 90 minutes and they asked why I was feeling suicidal and what I had been through. And they asked, you know, have you lost people? And I told them, you know, I'd lost my father. I'd lost Rodney. And Dick Dick Dale had just recently died, who was like a father figure to me. And then they asked, has there been any any sexual abuse in your life? And I was at me and Noah and his wife and kid were at 
uh, golf driving range and I just started bawling and I ran behind a dumpster and I explained to her, yes, there has been. And I explained all of that. And that's something I still haven't gone into on my own podcast. And I don't think I'm really ready to yet here in, in any detail, but I just started crying like, wow. And that's when the woman was like, you, can you please get here immediately? Like, can you get on the first flight tomorrow? Like we can help you, but you have to come here. Yeah. And I did. So and just hearing that comforting voice and saying they had you, like, come, we got you. Yeah. And then the thing about being nervous was on the plane, I was like, I know when I get there, I'll be fine. But I'd never been to, I'd been to therapy one time before. And I knew that this was going to be intensive psychoanalysis, you know, and group therapy. And I didn't, they had explained a little on the phone, but I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. And uh turned out once I got there, obviously I like, I opened the fuck up yeah. and- I just let it all out, and that's why I've been able to like start. Pro- I started the day after I got there in group therapy. They kind of picked me to do this thing called the Walk of Life, where you kind of explain everything that everything you've experienced. And I just yeah. let it all out there, dude. That day for two hours in a group full of people I'd never met before, and I was like, "This happened to me as a child." Then this, and then this, and then this. And I was crying. People were hugging me, and then I was like, "Well, I just said it all. I just said it all to a group of strangers. Yeah. So now I have nothing to fear." And then I just you know, drilled down every little issue for two months while I was there and then have obviously kept working on it. But if it wasn't for the love and support I got from you and Moon and Max that night and getting me on the plane, I don't know that I could have faced it if I hadn't, if if you hadn't been like a buffer in that situation in my life, yeah. I might have just, I might have just said fuck it and told, you know, turned around at the airboard and gotten on a flight to somewhere else because, you know, I had all those free, I might free flight seen, I might have seen you again. Yeah. It was the love and respect you guys gave me. And you didn't ask me, barely asked me what I was going through at that time. Like you just said, hey, we want to buy you popcorn. We're going to take you to a movie. want to just, you kept my mind off of things. You yeah. weren't like, what's wrong? Why are you, why'd you try to do this? You were just a caring friend. And so I've talked to other people that want to, like a friend of mine's brother killed himself recently. Um, it's a guy you know, actually. I'll tell you about it later. I don't want to blow up his spot, but. Another friend was like, how do I talk to our friend about this? And mm-hmm. I was like, just call him and talk to him. Don't at, don't make him relive the situation. Yeah. And I've had friends ask me about how do I talk to my friends who are trying to get sober? And like, they've been sober for 30 days. They got out of rehab. How do I talk to them? And I'm like, just be their friend. When someone's going through trauma, whether it be addiction, whether it be yep. sexual stuff, suicidal urges, whatever it is, the last thing you want and the last thing I wanted when I got home from Florida, people were texting me just being like, how are you? And I was like, don't ask me how I am. Be like, hey, do you want to go get lunch? Send me a funny meme. Ask me if I want to watch the Knicks game. I want to talk about anything but how I am. Yeah. And if so, if you're out there and you're listening, you have a friend who's suffering from, you know, mental illness or disparity. Don't ask them to recount how that's going for them. Just be their friend and ask them about anything but that. And that's what what you guys did for me that night, which really helped me get there. But I think you always... um you were always a guy, the outgoing, funny, crazy, wild Jake that was always making people laugh and always was just, you know, center of attention. Always want to do fun things and live your life to the fullest and do crazy things. Um, have we talked about the burn on your neck and how you got it? I haven't talked about it. No, I don't think I, on here. I just have a feeling that this episode is going to be, become something <laughs> that I want to release as well. We're both releasing because I feel like our listeners could really love your story. Because we did this a long time ago before you went through the suicide shit. We yeah. talked about like you booking shows, but like what you're talking about is so fucking heavy and so important that so many people can relate <laughs> to it. But so now we're gonna we're gonna go back and forth through questions now because because <laughs> uh, now you got me emo, you're emo. But he, he Jake has this crazy fucking scar on his neck where it's a totally different skin color and it's 
you did you only never talked about it before i haven't brought it up on my own podcast yet no um i've talked about it obviously in person plenty of times but yeah i uh we're flipping the script now man on this <laughs> shit um was it were you like was it a sword swallowing that was on fire it was fire breathing act that i i had learned how to do in high school for a, a rap group that i was in um i taught myself how to breathe fire and then something went wrong in las vegas i actually yeah i did talk about this because when i was in las vegas after i got my motorcycle i touched on it but i didn't really talk about it yeah and um so there were a couple of bands at wetlands that found out that i knew how to breathe fire so i did it with a couple of bands and then i did it at a couple of like jam band festivals and then this jam band called the disco biscuits were like you should come do it because Wetlands, we did a lot of hardcore shows there, obviously. Of and also, there were a lot of jam bands that played there as well, which was kind of funny because you had hippie murals. Yeah. And then you cut to there's like Yuppa Side, Black mm-hmm. Train Jack, H2O, Rage Against the Machine. Rancid, so many shows. Yeah, there, Rancid, yeah. Queers and Avail all played on one show together there. But yeah, Sundays were our big hardcore day. But Saturdays were called Psychedelic Saturdays for their jam band. So this band, the Disco Biscuits, were like, hey, we're doing two nights in Vegas at a place called Legends Lounge. You should come do your fire breathing routine with us. And uh, <laughs> I did. And I went out there. And I remember I went out there with my best friend from that I had grown up with from high school. DJ Stitch is his name. Mike McGee is his real name. And he, we flew out together. The band paid for my ticket and put me up so I could be part of their show. And... Um, we told the owner of the venue what was going to go down, and he was like, let me give you a fire extinguisher at least. And Mike was at the front of the stage, and something happened. You know, when you're breathing fire, you drink kerosene out of one yeah. hand, you have a torch in the other, you drink the kerosene, then you blow, and it makes a big flame, and it's pretty yeah. pretty simple. But while I was drinking the kerosene with my left hand, something bumped into my right hand. I think it was the neck of the base of the guy in the band. Yeah. I'm not blaming him at all. There's no fault. Um but a piece of the torch caught fire, the liquid, as I was going to put it in my mouth. And I shocked myself and poured it all over my face. Jesus. But I was wearing a Mexican wrestling mask with the mouth cut open. So it just went down my chest. And so my whole chest was on fire. And I Jesus, ran off man. the side of the stage. And the flames were coming up. So that's why it burned all here. And uh, yeah, Stitch was in the front row with the fire extinguisher. And he tried to put me out. But the fire extinguisher was empty. <laughs> and he told me later, you know, months later, obviously not that night, but he told me there was a fire on the stage from where the kerosene had fallen and that he had to take the fire extinguisher and roll it over the fire on the stage Holy to put shit. it out. And yeah. how many degrees burned is that? It was, these were third degree burns where you see the thing on my neck. And yeah, dude. So I went to the hospital. I went outside to the alley. I'd ripped my clothes off and... Stitch followed me out and was like, hey, man, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I, th- I think so. Jesus, that was fucked up, right? And I was still in shock. And the security guard came out and put a light on my neck. And I saw the look in Stitch's eyes when he looked at my neck. And that's when I was like, oh, oh no, it's bad, isn't it? And Stitch was like, yes. And I was, still, I was like, just get me a cab. Give me a taxi. And the security guard for the venue was like, we're getting an ambulance. And then the ambulance Damn. came and got me. And they took me in and, and they laid me out on this table in the emergency room. And the doctor kept using like a popsicle stick tongue depressor, like the thick popsicle yeah. stick, and kept touching it to my chest and just kept saying uh, my chest and my throat and was like, do you feel that? I was like, yes. He's like, do you feel that? Yes. And he said, good. And I said, OK, that, that's good. And he's like, well, if you, that means it's second degree burn. If you didn't okay. feel it, it means the nerves are dead. That would be a third degree burn. And then he was like, do you feel this? And I was like, no. And he was like, how about this? And I'm like, no. And he was like, uh-oh. That's kind of the last thing I remember. And then I woke up the next day and I was 11 days in that hospital. 
Then they let me out. I was all bandaged up. They used to, every day, they would come in. They would take me to another room, put me on a steel table, and a doctor would take literally like steel wool and just scrape my throat with it to get the dead skin and tissue off so that that the new tissue could grow under it. It was, dude, they gave me morphine, like multiple hits of morphine just for this procedure every day, and it was still the most painful thing I've ever experienced. How old were you when that happened? By far. I was, this was, this happened October 10th, 1999, so I was 26, wow, I just man. turned 26, yeah. Fuck. And yeah, ever since then, so I, they let me out of the hospital, I was all bandaged up, dude, I went to the carousel bar at Circus Circus, which is, remember Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the yes. movie where the, where, the, where the bar spins slowly, and they have a hard time getting off of it because they're all drugged yeah. up? I went to that bar, drank a couple whiskeys. Then went to the airport. They upgraded me to first class. First ever time I got to fly first class because the, the woman was like, what happened to you? And I was like, I just got out of the hospital. I'm flying back to New York. Uh, I'm third degree burns all through my throat. I look like a mummy. My head was wrapped wow. up because my face was burned too. So she was like, we're going to put you in first class. What do you think about that? And I was like, great. Damn. And then I flew home, had one day free. And then I had to go to a checkup in New York at a burn unit at Cornell Medical Center on 70th Street and First Avenue. And I got there and I was like, I'm going to go to work after this. I'm going to go back to the wetlands yeah. and go to work because I had just been in the hospital for 11 days, 10 days. Um, I think it was 10 days in Vegas and then 11 more in New York. So I went in for my checkup and the doctor unwrapped all my bandages. And he, I just, I'll never forget. He said, they let you out of the hospital in Las Vegas looking like this? And I was like, well, yeah. And he turned to the nurse and he's like, we need to admit him immediately. Make sure there's a bed ready. Let's get him in there. We're going to have to do skin graft surgery. And I was like, well, I got to go to work. Like it was like 9 a.m. I was like, I got to be at work at noon. And he's like, you're not going anywhere. Wow. Yeah. So there could have been infections, all kinds of shit, right? Yeah, there could have been lots of infections. And then the doctor told me at a certain point, the surgeon came to see me and he was like, we're going to do skin graft surgery. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to take a chunk of skin off your hip. I'll show you that scar later. Maybe you've seen it when we've been swimming. But uh, they took a huge chunk of skin off my hip and they stuck it to my chest. Yeah. So they cut out all the dead tissue and then put new skin in there somehow. And uh, Jesus. Then I had to lay in bed and heal for a long for. Yeah, it was 11 more days there. And then I had to wear this super, you know, compression socks that you yep. put on for a big run. I had a compression shirt, a top. Nice. That they, the way because it was on my throat and down into my chest, I had to wear a whole top. So it was like a short sleeve shirt that just compressed to push the skin down in. And then for for about a year after that, I went to a lot of checkups. And what would happen was I would just be hanging out and I would get these sharp shooting pains where the skin graft had happened all over. But just one at a time. And I'd just be watching TV and it'd be like, ow, fuck, super serious pain. And then I went to the doctor one day and I was like, this is what's happening. And he's like, that's normal. And I was like, let me guess. It's the nerves from the new skin connecting with my body in the other place and when they f- make a connection so shocking almost it yeah. shocks me and i f- they they recognize each other and shoot and pain to is? my brain and he was like that's basically Holy it yeah shit. i'm sure there's a more technical term for that but yeah wow yeah so that's something and i mentioned i i fell off a roof a building that's a story you've heard plenty of times i'm sure yeah but yeah but not on the one life one chance podcast yeah so <laughs> Now we're doing two podcasts. When I was 15 years old, I took my first ever trip to New York and I went with a friend. Uh, turns out this is the friend that I was talking about today that I stabbed when I was 16. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. 
And so we had a fight in a kitchen and he hit me in the balls and I pulled a drawer open. I was telling Toby earlier because I was like, I haven't stabbed anybody since 1989. I'm like, have you done it a lot? Yeah. Now, (laughs) that was the last time I stabbed somebody, I think. Um, You know, (laughs) shit's got easy. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I went with him. We went to visit New York City. It was my first time ever going there. I always wanted to go. And we ended up going playing hide and seek on the roof with his nephew. Yeah. And there was a long roof. Say this table was the roof. We we came up onto the roof here and the the roofs in New York City you've played on a lot of them. I'm sure you've hung out and yeah, like, yeah. you know, done bad things, drank drank vitamin water or whatever yeah. it is. But the drank uh snapples. Yeah, there's these things called firewalls that go between apartment buildings. They're just thick brick walls, so if a fire breaks out in one building, it won't spread to the next, but they go about 3 feet above the top of the roof. So that's how you know you're going from one building to the next when you're on the roof and we went up there to play hide and seek and it was it was August 17th 1989 and it was the 20 the the 20th anniversary of Woodstock which had happened August okay. 1969 and uh we went up to the roof and it was dark and we had been up there earlier and when you got up to the top of the roof if you looked in one direction the roof just went on forever and then there was a building that was like 20 stories tall so you were like oh the roof ends at that building and the kid said, ready or not, here I come, my friend's nephew. So we went to hide. My friend went one way to hide, and I went the other way. And I kept running along the rooftop. And every time I got to a new building, I would put my hands down on the firewall, which was like three feet high, and mm-hmm. hop over it and vault over it and throw my legs over it. And I got to the last one. And it turned out there was an alley between the end of the building and the next building. Okay. And I hopped over the edge. And I remember the minute... The minute I, the second I hopped over and realized, I looked down and I was like, that's six floors to the ground there. I fucking almost had a heart attack. And I just thought to myself, this is it. And I remember those are the words that went through my head. I didn't say, I didn't say uh, like, oh my God, oh shit, I'm going to die. I just thought this is it. And wow. then don't remember anything else. And I just fell straight to the ground. I ended up um, breaking my third and fourth lumbar vertebrae in my back. I broke Fuck. every rib on the left side. I broke the bone that's above my eyebrow. Yeah. Uh, it's called an orbital fracture. And uh, that's not even the craziest part of the story because <laughs> apparently the doctors told me after, they're pretty sure I hit my head on an air conditioner that was sticking out of the building. Holy and that shit. slowed me down while I was falling because that's they could tell it was something sharp and jagged that hit my head that broke this bone. And they think the head is what slowed me down. Holy um, hitting head my broke head. fall on air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. But then I remember waking up in the alley and my friends didn't know where I'd gone because we were playing hide and seek. And I guess I didn't scream when I jumped off the building. Yeah. And uh, I remember the neck. I remember waking up and being like, oh, kind of groggy coming to and being like, oh, my God, my parents are going to fucking kill me. I can't believe this happened. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And then I heard a gun cock and then a light shined in my face. And someone had called the superintendent of the building and heard me hit the ground in the alley and thought I had jumped over the fence and was trying to break in. So wow. he came and found me and he cocked the gun and was like, what are you doing here? And I mumbled to him and then he turned a flashlight on. Saw the blood and shit. Yeah. yeah and was like, holy fuck, what happened? And I remember telling him, I'm, I, I'm fine. I'm just dreaming. This can't really be happening to me. I'm going to be okay. And he took off. And I was like, I'm going to call an ambulance. This was 1989, so he didn't have a cell phone. Wow. So he went back into the building, called the ambulance. The next thing I remember, ambulance, the EMTs came around the corner. They laid me down on the ground softly, started cutting all my clothes off. I had just been to see The Who that summer at Foxborough Stadium in Massachusetts, where mm-hmm. we both grew up. And 
they were cutting my Who t-shirt off. And I was like, you don't cut that off. I just paid $25 <laughs> for that. And I had that shirt for years. It was soaked in blood. Holy shit. Yeah. So that was like my first near-death experience. That was 1989. Then 1999, I set myself on fire. Yeah. And then in 2009, I had just bought my second motorcycle. And I remember being like, well, th this is probably going to be it. Like, I wasn't really suicidal at that point yet. My dad died in 2006, and that's when I really started suffering from... Were you guys super close? Depression. No. My whole life, my dad... My dad was a very, like... He was the only first guy in his family to go to college. My older sisters both went to college. I was not on that track. I was selling yeah. drugs. I was causing trouble. I was in rap groups. I was, like... I was a bad boy. You know what I mean? I dropped out of school in 10th grade, had to go to summer school, then went tried to go through 10th grade again and, and failed most of my classes. And then I got sent to a, I got sent off to a boarding school because there was Fuck. also issues with the police. Like the, the police told my parents, we had a meeting at the, at my high school, the police, my parents and the principal. And they were like, if you don't get him out of the school, we don't care where you put him. You need to send him somewhere. Cause he's going to end up in jail. Cause we have our eyes on him and we know he's a criminal and we know he's selling drugs. We just haven't caught him yet. Wow. So my parents ended up sending me to this, this like bad boy school in New Hampshire, and um, was that was that rough? No, nah. ah, uh, it was. Did, uh, did it change you at all? It wasn't like a pen. It wasn't. It was just for fucking kids. Put them on the right track. It's kind of like yeah, uh, exactly. military vibe, or I don't know. No, nah, it wasn't exactly like that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like an exclusive boarding school, if yeah. you know what I mean. But it also wasn't like uh, wasn't like Sean Penn. From that movie, what, what the fuck it? movie was that you're talking about? Boys or whatever. Really? Um, but yeah, it wasn't one of those okay. schools where it was like everyone was a criminal. It was just like it was for kids who could get your shit together. It was scared a, straight it, and all that shit. Yeah, 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 it was a get your shit together school. And then I ended up doing super well, and I ended up graduating fourth in my class because when I got there, I was like, I gotta do something right. And then, um, but my dad, so my dad was never proud of me and made that quite obvious um, because that he, sucks. Yeah. But right before he died, when he got cancer, is right around when I started Rocks Off, and he got diagnosed with terminal cancer, and I was starting Rocks Off, and he finally told me before he died that he was proud of me. And wow. Like, we didn't talk from the time I moved to New York City. I went to college for one year in Massachusetts and dropped out. I failed every, literally every class. And then I moved to New York City, and he was like, if you don't come back to Massachusetts and finish college, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And I was like, well, that's a tough thing, but yeah. I... I I have to move to New York. And like him and my mother would come visit me a couple of times. And my dad had all he could do to look me in the eye. Like my mother had to drag him to New York to visit me. And uh, that what, was really. What, what year did you move to New York? How old were you? 94. Okay. Shit. Okay. Yeah. And I started working at Wetlands almost right away. And it, so it wasn't until 10 years after that, like 2004, I'd started Rocks Off in 2002, which he didn't think was cool at all because I wasn't making any money. But around 2004, it's just, I think when we did the first actual Rocks Off shows with H2O when we started becoming tight is when he got cancer and then I started driving to Boston almost every week. If I didn't have a show going on for two days, I would drive to Boston, yeah. rent a car, drive to Boston, sit with him. And I remember like, I never told him I was a Yankee fan because he was a Red Sox yeah. fan. We would go sit and watch baseball We've games. We've been heartbroken. Heartbroken. And I was like, who's this guy? You know? And he's like, Johnny Damon. And I'm like, Oh, he's the center fielder. And my dad's like, how do you not know this? And I was like, they don't show Red Sox games on TV in New York. I don't have the right cable wow. channel. But it was really because I didn't like the Red Sox. But it would have broken his heart if he knew that I had a Yankee tattoo, had Yankee season tickets, you know. Mm -hmm. um, 
but it was so bittersweet because I was like, my dad's finally accepted me. And because he saw like I had bought an apartment in 2005 when he died in 2006. You and, bought an apartment in Manhattan? Yeah, Sick. in Harlem. It's awesome. And uh, he finally was like, he finally admitted to me. He was like, you know, he actually said before he died, like, I, I was scared for you because I lived my life in a certain way and I always did the safe thing and I wanted my kids to do Play the safe, safe thing because I wanted them, I wanted you to have a better life than I did. And he's like, now it looks like you're going to and you did it in a way that you followed your own heart and you made something happen in New York that. City. And so that really made me be like, I finally earned the love and yeah. respect of my father. And then a few months later, he was dead. Wow, man. Uh, and then I, you know. I kind of snapped in retrospect. That's when I snapped and I started getting depressed. And Probably I started, because you wish you had spent most of your life with him and not just had that last couple of moments to where you like, I mean, to hear him say that to you. At the time, I thought to myself, well, this is great. I got it. But when he died, I just had lot. I was like rudderless. I was a ship off at sea that didn't have any mm -hmm. direction. And I just didn't I didn't know what to do with my life after that. I broke up with a longtime girlfriend right before he died which in retrospect was a horrible decision, but yeah. in, a, in other, you know, it was also the right decision at that time. That, that a lot of stuff I worked out in therapy, mm -hmm. but I can trace a lot of my real serious issues to back then to not handling his death properly. And that's what I, I not grieving back then. No, yeah. I wasn't grieving. I was like, I'm fine. I made peace. That, that was the dangerous thing, Toby, is I made peace with my dad before he died and I got his acceptance. So then when he died, I refused to acknowledge, I refused to let the grief in and grieve him properly and mm. then i started acting out in in different ways and by drinking and drugs and all that shit yeah i mean I, I had already been drinking and taking drugs but i had like stopped all that for three years at a certain point because i was like i'm doing this too much and and you know i don't know that i was a drug addict ever or an alcoholic because i would always stop for what, as long as i wanted to but yeah. then you know i got myself in fucking crazy situations you know what i mean smoking crack fucking prostitutes like wow like getting peed on like like everything yeah everything like I, we don't need to run down a list but i've done some fucking really insane shit that i would you, you have no respect for yourself you i had no care. respect for that was it man yeah you don't yeah. care who cared and like you know and even th that summer that i was around yolo, riding my bro. motorcycle yolo froyo <laughs> fomo fuck you um, but yeah, that, you know, wow. fighting, like I got more fights in the summer of 2009 than I had the whole rest of my life combined because I had this one summer. He's and such I, a loving guy though. He doesn't seem like a violent person at all. Not usually, but I had this one summer where I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let anyone disrespect anyone else or me. And I just started calling people out. Like you're at a bar, someone cuts in front of you like, Hey, you can't fucking cut in front of me. That's some fucking bullshit. What are you going to do about it? Well, let's fight. Wow. And I lost a lot of those fights that summer, but I had it in my head. I was like, I'm going to fight anybody. I don't give a fuck. And I, it's almost like. Almost like Fight Club, you know, you yeah. just, I needed to feel alive. And that's why I was doing riding recklessly on motorcycles and prostitutes and like, like all that kind of stuff. Just living on the edge, like who gives a fuck? Exactly. Live exactly. every day to the fullest. And I think a lot of people say like, I had those two near death experiences earlier in my life. One when I was 16, one when I was 26. And a lot of people said after my first one, they're like, a lot of my relatives and aunts and uncles were like, now you know that you've been put on this earth for a purpose. And I, I heard them say that. I never felt that. And especially after the second one and then after my dad died, I just was like, I'm literally indestructible and I don't care about myself. So I'll do anything. I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Bungee jumping off a bridge in fucking Africa, you know, where I was like. You were living in Africa too for a while. Yeah. Well, yeah. I chased a girl there and I ended up 
I went there for three months the first and time. You worked in the uh, Greenpeace or Peace Corps? Peace Corps. Yeah, she yeah. was in the Peace Corps, and then I followed her there, and then I ended up like helping build a library there. It's fucking awesome. Yeah, that was in Botswana. What um, really kicked off is, is one of your good friends gave you like this buddy pass for an airline. So as soon as you got that, you were fucking nonstop jet setting everywhere. 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 Yeah. I had moved I'm to gonna go to I'm gonna go to South America this weekend. Yeah. I moved to London in two thousand fourteen, yeah. which was Brooklyn Bowl. Yeah, I went to I got offered a job to book the Brooklyn Bowl in London and I went there and that was like I was hoping to like really find a purpose. I'd lost a purpose. I had my own business with Rocksoft and it was successful and yeah. I was making a lot of money, but I it wasn't satisfying. For me. people listening, have you ever seen H2O playing on one of the boats going around Manhattan? Uh have you seen any, any of our past shows in ten to fifteen years? Jake is behind all those boat shows. Like you said earlier, Knitting Factory, Gramercy, Irving Plaza, everywhere. Jake's always been like, yeah. Yeah, I've always put on the H2O shows. But um, So, you know, you, yeah, you're in, you're in my, England now. Yeah, yeah, so then I was like, I got an offer to move to England, and nothing was satisfying me. So I was like, maybe if I go work for another person's venue and work with a team. And so I moved over there. And then when I moved, I met this guy in England who was a flight attendant. And I was performing, actually, at a show in London it was it was this guy named Ginger Wildheart's fiftieth birthday party, and he 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 used to do a show every year on his birthday party, and he the show was at the Kentish Town Forum, which okay. I saw you and Sick of It All play there because my old I used to play in a band called Tragedy that was a heavy metal tribute to the Bee Gees. Sick. And we played there one night in two thousand like ten, and H O and Sick of It All played the next night, and I like snuck into the dressing room because the security guard recognized me because we had played there the night before, and I still had glitter all over my face, and I remember I surprised <laughs> you in the dressing oh, room, and you right. were like, "What are you?" doing here and i was like see all that glitter in your dressing room and you're like yeah and i was like my band played here last night that's our Crazy, glitter and you man. were like what the fuck that's true i remember that yeah um but yeah at kentish town forum i sang this song on stage and it was like sold out and it was my friend's birthday party and i came off stage and i did wild shit that night i like the song was called country boy so i stripped down at the end of the song i like handed out roses to the crowd while i was singing it. then i stripped down i had this confederate flag fucking like speedos on jesus and you know, that was kind of funny then, I guess. Obviously, I would never do that again. Um, but it was the theme of the performance, Terrifying. I guess. But this guy came up to me. It was like, you're the craziest motherfucker i ever seen. <laughs> and we became good friends. And he's a maniac and fucking drinking and loves taking drugs and just like, he's wilder than I was. Yeah. And then eventually I came, you know, when I moved back from New York, I didn't want to live in New York anymore. And I moved out here and bought a motorcycle. That's right. And I was living up in the Hollywood Hills. And that's when... Obviously, we started spending way more time together because totally. I had my motorcycle. And um, what I ended, and then, yeah, so that dude made me his domestic partner. So I could fly anywhere I wanted in the world for free at it's the drop crazy. of a hat. I still can. I still can, yeah. yeah. And now I don't want to go anywhere. That's the weird thing. And I guess mm. we'll get around to that. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah. And, and what I learned through all this therapy and stuff and it, like lots of therapy and tons of introspection and meditation and really like taking stock of how I ended up where I ended up. You know, I'm about as big a success story as you could see from someone who was trying to kill themselves, yeah. you know, and um, but I was I was going all over the world. Like there was this one time I was dating that German girl and I gave her a ride to the airport on my motorcycle and I was supposed to come hiking with you. That's right. After that, we were going to go to Runyon. So all I had in my backpack was a pair of shorts, running shoes and my laptop because I was going to spend the night at your house after that. Correct. I brought her to the airport. And then it was raining and you texted me and you're like, we're not going to Runyon today because it's raining. And rather than take my motorcycle back to the Hollywood Hills, 
I fucking went inside the airport and I ended up flying to Sydney, Australia that day. That's with, right. with, <laughs> and then I texted my friend Ben Higgs, who you've met. Uh huh. The whole reason I'm friends with him is he ran an E1 Melrose one day when he was on vacation and was trying to come to the boat show in New York. Got you. And you said, you have to put this guy on the guest list. I just ran into him. So I texted wow. him from the plane. I was like, Ben, are you in Sydney, Australia right now? He's like, yeah. And I was like, cool, I'll be there in 14 hours. They just shut the door on this airplane. I'm Jesus. about to taxi. And he was like, what? And I was like, meet me at... Uh, Meet me at uh, Bondi Beach, you know, tomorrow at noon and like bring me some clothes because all I have is shorts and a T-shirt. Like I had boots Dude. on. I was wearing boots and jeans. I remember that. Motorcycle boots. I didn't even have flip flops. You think of that, that back then that's you running away from just life? That's it, man. That was the whole thing. Yeah. I thought I was in. I thought I was going in search of something. And like I went to Tokyo on a whim one day to because I looked at my phone and I was like, oh, Wrestle Kingdom, which is the Japanese version of WrestleMania is happening two nights from now. <laughs> I just went to the airport and I was like, I need the next flight to Tokyo that that has a seat available. And they put me on it. And then I, you know, but it's such a beautiful freedom. It sounds like like really no responsibilities. Yeah. No wife, no kids, no house, no payments, no, none of that shit. That you, was all you're just living just out there. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. It's something beautiful about that, that freedom of doing that. Yeah. It would have been more beautiful if I hadn't already known like that whole time I knew I was going to kill myself. Like really probably since 2010, I knew I was going to kill myself. That's the weird thing. We used to know what, when or what year. Yeah. And I just knew I was like a flip switch to us, a switch flipped at a certain point. And I was like, eventually I'm going to die of suicide. I'm sure of it. And I'm not scared of that. And I'm going to have the most amount of fun I can leading up to that moment. Yeah. That's what I thought in my head. But when I look back on it all now, I was really like looking for something to give me a reason to live. And that's why I moved to London. That's why I took off to Africa and like, dude, I did some crazy shit in Africa too. Like I fucking took a two wheel drive car in a, in the, the um, Okavanga Delta game reserve where you like you, you were not supposed it huge signs. Do not go in here with, unless you have four wheel drive with high clearance. Like, I almost got trampled by elephants in there trying to get my car unstuck from the sand. Wow. Like I And I didn't give a fuck. I was like, who cares? Like, just really wild shit that no one in their right mind would do. But I was really looking for, like, I needed some stimulation to make me want to live. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was taken off to South America. I had never been there. So I was like, I'm going to go to Rio de Janeiro. Then I was like, I'm going to go to fucking Buenos Aires. Just on a whim. Literally, like, I in that. my apartment one day. And then I texted a friend. I blew off my own birthday party that I had staged on a boat with that too. the Dean Ween group. And then people are texting me, like, I want to get a beer with you. And I had, like, at, like, 3 o'clock that afternoon, I was supposed to be at the boat at 6. By 6 o'clock, I was at JFK drinking. Wow, being man. like, I'm going to fucking, I'm taking off to Rio today. And then I ended up like taking a boat to some remote island and then I was doing fearless. all these hikes. Fear like who cares all by myself. But now are you fearless anymore? Cuz now you want to live. Yeah, now I want to live, but I'm also like last summer I left from New York. I'm like I fucking go camp in the middle of the woods. All right, so what happened was I haven't lost my lust for adventure, but I there's different things I want to do now. I don't want to do anything that's dangerous. I'm not doing dangerous things cuz I want to die. I'm doing dangerous things. I'm doing things that excite me. So yeah. make you feel alive. Yeah. Yeah. And what I realized after all that therapy and stuff that I was trying to run away from something. I thought I was trying to run toward something. I was like, I'm in search of something. I need a sign that makes me want to live. And then when it came time to actually kill myself, I, I was like, I don't want to kill myself. So then I reached out for help and then I did all this therapy and stuff. And I realized like, like I don't, I want to live, but I want to live like, like I, I don't need to go places. I found like I don't need to run towards things yeah. like 
I ended up moving to Idaho by mistake. So when when COVID happened, I got very sick with COVID very early. I was an early adopter. Talking through all that, man. I was in New York City. I had my first symptoms on March 13th. And then by June 15th, I literally flew out here because I had left my camping gear in your garage. Yep. And um, I put all my shit in storage. I gave up my apartment. But by that time, I was like, I don't need... I'm not trying to run away from anything. Yeah. Because by that time I realized like I'm comfortable with myself and in my own head. So I was like, I didn't want to get on a plane and go anywhere. I love my motorcycle. And I was like, I'm just going to fucking camp in the middle of the woods. So what I was doing before that was like, I need to fly to Brazil. I need to go to this wrestling match. I need to go to a comedy club every night. Like maybe you did that. How many so many I used to go to the comedy store so often. I know. And I'd go to like. You'd be like, what are you doing tonight? I'm like, I got tickets for the six o'clock show at the comedy store, the eight thirty show and the midnight show. And I'm going to go to all three. And you're like, what are you doing? Anything to be in reality, escaping your reality. Any- exactly. Yeah. Anything to escape my reality. So when COVID hit, I took off on my motorcycle and just went camping. And the huge difference was I couldn't sit alone with my thoughts for 15 years. I, I had to listen to a podcast. I had to be listening to music. I had to be texting people. I had to be at a pro wrestling match in Japan. Become a juggalo, all that. Become a juggalo. Almost got beaten to death at the gathering of the juggalos, um, which a whole other That story. made me so sad, man. Seeing the photos of you, man. That was horrible. Yeah. I got attacked by a violent mob at the gathering of the juggalos. They beat me kind of half to because, death is what you would but say. But because your shirt said the wrong... Yeah. It, it, it's like a motto or something. Please tell the story. I mean, it really, it really bummed me out. And the fact that you never covered that tattoo up. Are you still, are you still a juggalo? Yeah, whoop, whoop, down with the clown until oh, I'm dead in the ground. I don't know what that means, but, but you wore a shirt that said the wrong thing, I think, right? Yeah, but it was, I think what it was real, I, I tried to play it off like it was that when it actually happened, but I think it was the fact that it was, I had cut the shirt into a half shirt, I was covered in glitter, I was wearing Daisy Dukes, I think I, I, think I was a victim of a hate crime against homosexuals um, when I was just, like, if you if if you're listening to this on Toby's channel or whatever, it's like <laughs> you just look through my Instagram. I've I've always dressed outrageous, dye my hair pink. I have a fucking crazy mullet right now. I just yeah. showed up here in pink overalls. Your um, your back tattoo is pretty off the chain. I have a tattoo of myself on my back. That's me as half man, half motorcycle. My entire back, not a small tattoo. That's it's a insane. huge back piece. So yeah, but, so you, so so you just got beat down there for like looking a certain way. Yeah, hospitalized. Brutally beat down. I saw the pictures. It was, hor- it was fucking yeah. horrifying. By like man. six guys with rocks and bricks. And yeah, that's what we can. I mean, if but, you, but, but, but what made you want to continue to be part of that after getting beat up? Well, what happened? Here, okay, here's the here's the story. Well, I want to get positive back to, side to that. I want to get back to the positive side. So here's what happened. We took all these mushrooms, uh, me and my friends, and then the mushrooms wore off after the aliens came down. You ever well, tell like, a story in your podcast? I don't, I don't know. I don't oh, think I've then. told this one. It's, it's a dual, dual um, podcast. Let's go. You know, some of these stories, Toby, I've been saving on my podcast for when I run out of like other stories <laughs> to tell. Like These and are now, supposed to be big event stories that would take the whole podcast. And now, now the world's going to hear your podcast. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, and I, you Not know, the world, but... I, I probably business. tell these stories again, too, because yeah. they, don't, they don't fade, right? This can be on both. We drop us on both podcasts. I don't care. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Now I stole your whole podcast. But, no, that's okay. But I want you to ask me questions, too, like you planned on doing. Yeah. But let's so, get to this upbeat down. <laughs> So I go to the gathering of the jugglers. This was the second year in a row, and uh, I, I got to keep it somewhat succinct. But I did a boat party with the Insane Clown Posse, and I met a bunch of jugglers. And I was really scared to do this boat party, and I met all these jugglers, and it turned out to be really nice people. They, like they were, they were ugly and fat and kind of like not that bright for the most part, but they were fucking cool and open and welcoming. And they kept coming up to me. I was wearing a Rocks Off hoodie, and they're like are you from rocks off? And I was like, yeah, this is my company. Thank you for letting us on a boat. Everyone hates juggalos. And it went off without a hitch. 
Then I went the following year. I chartered a bus <laughs> called the Jug. I called it the Juggalo Express. That's we brought a, a bunch of Juggalos to the gathering of the Juggalos in Cave Rock, Illinois, is where it was being held that year and the next year when I went back. But like just on the ride out there, man, everybody started drinking because I encouraged people to drink on the bus. And it was like a 26 hour bus ride from New York wow, City man. to Cave Rock, Illinois. And uh, but like at one stop, people started graffitiing this rest stop. Then at the next stop, two guys like basically robbed the convenience store at the rest stop and came running out with all the stuff under their shirts and jackets. They didn't rob the register, but they stole shit. Wow. The guy comes out, starts yelling at the bus driver. These people stole my stuff. Meanwhile, I look over here, a guy that I had brought with me who had done social media for the whole bus trip. He's waving a fucking gas gas nozzle around that he had lit on fire and he's spraying fire everywhere. It was like something out of Mad Max. And then we got on the bus and I told the bus driver his name was Kangaroo. He's this crazy old black dude. And I was like, the fuck out of here. And he's like, man, the police are coming. I was like, no kidding. Let's get out of here, you know. And then everyone was so fucked up. We wake up the next morning and I said to the guy that I had brought who did the social media who set the fire. And I was like, dude, last night we had fucking vandalism, theft and arson. And he was like, arson? What was the arson? And I was like, what was the arson? You, you fucking lit the gas pump on fire and spraying it everywhere. He's like, Oh, fuck. I knew I shouldn't have taken that Xanax before I started drinking the Jack Daniels. Jesus. That's your bus driver? That No, that was oh, okay, the okay. social media guy. But Kangaroo, Jeez, the bus driver, man. he was a whole other problem. But like, that's the kind of shit that I would get involved with and not think was crazy. Like, I woke up the next morning. I was like, that was hilarious. But you were attracted to the jugglers because it was like a family of all misfits, kind of like punk rock vibe, right? It was exactly like punk rock yeah. vibe. But even when we snow a Different punk walks rock of vibe. Life. Punk rock vibe and hippies and jam bands. Yeah. There's a real hierarchy. But what I found with the Juggalos is there really wasn't a hierarchy. It was like if you showed up and you were cool, it didn't matter if you had pink hair, if you had not pink hair. It didn't matter if you were wearing a suit. Unless you're Jake that one day. Well, so then what happened was I take all these mushrooms. This is the second year. I went back and I was like, I'm not going to do a bus this time. But I rented an RV and just went with a few friends. We take all these mushrooms and we go to the wrestling match. And then I was dressed very like provocatively, but... <laughs> I got knocked out from behind and my friends were watching wrestling in front of me. So I woke up. I was looking at the stars. There were people over me and they were like, I was like, what just happened? Why? Why am I looking up at the stars now? I was just watching this wrestling. And all these people were like, yo, this guy came up from behind and fucking knocked you out. He just hit you from behind. And we turned around. We heard you hit the ground and we shouted at him and he ran away. So these juggalos all came and they were like, are you OK? Can I get you water? And they helped me up and they helped me to like this grassy little hill. And they I was like, I'll be fine. Like, I'm just going to like stay here and rest. You guys enjoy the rest. Are you bleeding and stuff? Uh, I don't know that I was bleeding at that point. I don't actually remember. Um, well, you on mushrooms as well. Yeah, the mushrooms are kind of wearing off. OK, but so they all went back to watching wrestling and they brought me like some cold water and I was like, I'll come join you in a few minutes. Let me just like I was literally seeing stars and and hearing high-pitched noises in my ear like I was definitely had a concussion and then I remember I'm wa like watching the wrestling off in the distance and then I see this group of like six guys come over and then just one of them like basically I was laying down on my back just up on my elbows a little and the dude pretty much jumped in the air with a brick or a rock in his hand and smashed it on my face the same kind of same from the other same guy from really probably was I would assume so because I never saw him the first time and then all of a sudden, there were like six guys on me, and one of them ripped my shirt off. And that's the story that kind of went around, because one guy ripped my shirt off to take his fucking shirt off. And the shirt was spelled whoop whoop, but W-O-O-P instead of W-H-O-O-P. So the story that kind of went around, almost by mistake, was that like I got beat up because my shirt was misspelled. 
because uh, my friend made it for me to wear to the fest. And then he was like, you better not. Like, the jugglers won't appreciate you misspelling whoop whoop. And then that oh, kind of like shit. that took on a life of its own. But what happened was then all the jugglers who had saved me, plus my friends, the friends I went with, it was Shane, who used to work for Rocks Off, who was like literally five foot two. He's trying to fight these guys off. And then Jessica, who's worked with me for Rocks Off forever. So it's like it's this five foot two kid and a fucking woman trying to like get these six people off me. So then the other jugglers who had helped me before came and like peeled them off of me and they were fighting with them. And then Jesus. the guys ran away. And I, by that point, I was like, my, I was a fucking bloody mess. You know, my face was all swollen. It was like really a nightmare. Fuck. And but those juggalos fucking picked me up off the ground and they're like, we're going to take you to the medical tent. And they formed a literal ring around me. Wow. And brought me to the medical tent. And they're like, we're going to bring you to the medical tent and we're going to make sure no one else attacks you again tonight. And it's that's amazing, why I was man. like, the Juggalos are great, man. Like, they mm -hmm. saved me. So even if the other guys were Juggalos, which I would assume they were just, like, people there to cause trouble. Yeah. But even if they were Juggalos, a bunch of other Juggalos made sure that that wouldn't happen again, yeah. you know? So people really, it's like a mosh pit. Like, someone falls down in the mosh pit, everyone else picks them up. It was a little different because yeah. I was the victim of a, I mean, I, it's not, I don't think it's a stretch to say I was a victim of an attempted murder. You know, these wow, guys were trying to fucking man. kill me because they all had rocks and bricks that they were smashing me with in the head multiple times. And you've seen the pictures, obviously. Just with like getting burned and falling off a building <laughs> and then um, getting jumped and then, you know, staying in a hotel and going there to kill yourself. I mean, you're fucking here for a reason, man. You've been through a lot of shit, man. You're a fucking survivor, yeah. man. Yeah. Whether I, you whether you want to believe it or not, like you're here for a reason. Even if you didn't want to be here for that, 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 that moment, those couple years. You're fucking here, man. And I pre I love yeah. and appreciate you being there. That was, Thank you. That was some scary times when just trying to talk to you every day while you have to rehab. And, and just to, to shout out Music Cares, like they're fucking incredible. And they did some shit for my friend after that as well. And they, they came to Jake's rescue so fucking fast. And whoever runs that in the music industry is incredible. And I I don't know people's particular names, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of musicians involved in that. Yeah. And they fucking saved your life, dude. Yeah, the woman who took care of me, her name was Jennifer Leff. I don't think she'd mind me saying that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was the one who spoke with me for an hour and a half and was like, like she she was like, we speak with people and then we figure out exactly how to help them. And then when she asked about if I had loss, if I was grieving death, and then when she asked about the sexual trauma, she was like, I know exactly where you need to go, you know? And that, you know, that's the other thing. There were some rumors started by someone that we have a friend in common, you know, who told people that I was high on crack and that I was trying to steal money from people and stuff. And, you know, of of anyone I've ever worked with and dealt with, like, obviously, that I'm the most generous guy you've probably ever. 100 percent. You used to you, you said to me for years, stop paying for everything. Right. Yeah. When we would hang out, we'd go to Crossroads. All keep, right. I'd give Max $100 because I swore too much in front of him. Like yeah, the tip jar was yeah, full of swear, money. Swear jar. Swear jar. Yeah. I remember one time I came to visit you and it was like a dollar a swear. And like within five minutes, I was up to like $10. So I just pulled pulled a $50 bill out of my wallet and handed it to Max. And you were like, what are you doing? I was like, now I'm good for the whole fucking day. <laughs> yeah. Max loves uncles that swear back then. He was getting paid. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, fuck. How long are you out there for? Out in the Florida, Florida. The I was there for sixty days, but then they didn't extend it for you because you were fucking killing it. Yeah, what happened was, um, Music Care said we can, we're gonna send you here for thirty days, and we're gonna pay for it. We're yeah. a charity. We can, like, we have, we have a special deal with them. They were like, it's cost sixty thousand dollars a month for this place, Jeez, and um, so the place is like, there's drug rehabs. You know, that people go to. Yeah, they need thirty, sixty, ninety days for drugs and alcohol. This was a place where. Everyone else that I was there with, about half of the people had drug and alcohol problems, and the other half of the people were just crazy. 
you know, and that's a I shouldn't say that word. They were just had mental illness. Yes. Kind of like I do. Um, and it wasn't a traditional drug and alcohol rehab center. But w- what this place was, was so you go to a drug and alcohol rehab, you do your 90 days and then someone would say to you there, hey, man, like you have a lot of underlying issues that cause you to become a drug addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. You should go to the guest house in Ocala, Florida. And their their whole thing is they either take people with mental illness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is, a lot of suicidal cases. That's kind of what they specialized in. And so half of their people would come from a drug and alcohol treatment facility and they would be like, I've been clean for 90 days. Now we need to get to the root cause of like what made me become a drug addict. Like what are the issues in your life that are unresolved that made you turn to drugs and alcohol? And I would say I more than drugs and alcohol being my issue i was like an adrenaline junkie and i was mm-hmm. like dude the, the uh, um i'll get to that in a second but but so they like the person who started all these rumors about me he was telling people jake was a fucking junkie and was trying to rip people off and it was like oh god and it's like that was not the case and obviously we hung I know out that yeah we hung out for years and i didn't touch drugs or alcohol you know yeah. that wasn't that, that was something i would turn to sometimes um but so you've I always been professional through my band's career for over 15 years. Yeah. Always with the band. O- over, 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 uh, over kind, over generous hospitality guarantee. How you treat the band? Guestless, o- off the chain for us all the time. <laughs> always there, uh, physically, mentally, on yeah. stage. Like from day one, you've always done <laughs> nothing but great things no. for my band. So Thank we you. fucking love and, and appreciate you. For, for most bands through all, work through with, all your why. insanity and through all the crazy shit you tell these stories about through all this stuff yeah i never let that bleed in on my that, professional didn't affect life. your business or your professionalism yeah um so i went to this place and the music care is paid for 30 days and then three weeks into it during one of the group therapy sessions um they uh, group therapy would start with a check-in and everyone would go around the circle how are you feeling today yeah and i opened that one with when they got around to me they were like how are you feeling today and i was like oh, i just realized i've been here for 23 days so i have seven days left and they were like how does that make you feel and i just started crying and i was like i don't know how i'm gonna go back to new york and face all my friends after what they know about me because the whole reason i didn't get nobody on knew that- nothing it's what they thought they knew about you it's not right. what they know about you no but but they, I was they, so they knew you were suicidal toby the reason i came to you and noah in la when Peter Shapiro came to get me in Vegas was I said to him, I can't face my friends. I can't face Karina, who was mm-hmm. the general manager of Rocks. Off Karina, we love you, Karina. You're the best. Yeah. I had just disappeared. I had put my phone and my laptop in the safe at the Cosmopolitan Hotel. Wow. Turned them off and put it in the safe so no one could get in touch with me for wow. three weeks. That's why people call the cops and come to your door the hotel room. Exactly. When they finally, tr- they had to track me down at the hotel room. Wow. And, like, so... I, I I just you did not want to be found. I did not want to be found. I was trying to kill myself. So when Shapiro came out to get me, I said, I can't go back to New York. I don't know how I'm going to look Karina and Eddie Eyeball and Backyard Bill and all these guys that were they were all calling the police nonstop, calling every hotel in Vegas. And I had actually taken my name off the reservation. I told the hotel when I checked in, I was like, I don't want anyone to find me. I'm going through a nasty divorce. My wife is going to be looking for me. I knew what was wow. going on. So that's why they couldn't find me. They're calling the hotel. Is there a Sufnerowski? John Sufnerowski. That's my legal name. John Jacob Sufnerowski. Wow. They were like, we're, we need to find this guy in the hotel. They type it in. They're like, no, he's not here. Like, because so it wasn't until they got the police involved when they were like, this Did is. Did you get scared when the police came? They came twice, Toby. Did they, you get scared? The hotel manager came once and said, 
I know you've you know your name's off the reservation, but you, there's a woman named Karina looking for you, and I was like, that's the woman I told you about. That's my ex-wife. I'm getting a divorce from. None oh of that, my! None God. of that's true. I just said, hey, I told you I didn't want to be bothered. Then a week later, two police officers from Las Vegas Police Department came. Hey, we know you don't want to be found, but we got a word that you're trying to kill yourself. And I was like, do I look like I'm trying to kill myself? The room was not in disarray. There weren't empty alcohol bottles anywhere. And they they agreed. They came in. And I was like, if I was trying to kill myself, wouldn't this place be a mess? I was like, I'm just I just I'm hanging out. Is there is it a crime? I want to be in Vegas. I don't want to be found. And the cops fucking left. Wow. And then the third time is when I finally called a friend and said, I know you guys have been looking for me. I've been trying to kill myself. I don't know what to do. And then they came, they started knocking on the door and I hid under the covers and they fucking literally knocked the door down. Six cops came in, two ran out to the balcony to keep me from running off the balcony to jump off to kill myself. Don't hotels supposed to have it so you can't do that? That's a, that's a question I want to ask you. Don't most hotels have it so you can't even, that you're that high? Most hotel windows don't open, but the Cosmopolitan has tons of balconies. And I actually found out from someone a few weeks ago when I was in Vegas, I talked to someone, not going to say. Don't say. Not going to say his name. Yeah. But he... He's been a high-ranking casino official for a long time. That's good. And enough. he was like, we went out for dinner, and he knows everything that had been yeah. happened. He was actually going around to casinos looking for me. Okay. My friends knew that I was a friend of his, and he actually yeah. told me, just told me a few weeks ago when I was in Vegas when we had dinner, he was like, I would took my son out a few times, and I knew you liked the Cosmopolitan. We came to the Cosmopolitan specifically looking for you, and I had shown my son pictures of you. My son wow. was 12 years old, and he had said to his son... My friend Jake is in trouble, and I think he's trying to kill himself. And they were just wandering the casino floor looking for me, hoping they could find me. So It was so much love, man. Yeah. (laughs) But he told me, he was like, you have no idea how many people kill themselves at the Cosmopolitan because it has open balconies that people can jump off when most most Vegas windows close. He's like, they cover that shit up. He's like, it happens on an at least weekly basis, sometimes more than that. People kill themselves. That's horrifying, man. But dude. Some of the things that were going through my head, I think you'll get a laugh out of this because of this I can funny. I'm up there on the balcony and I was looking down and I was like, if I jump off this balcony, I'm going to land. The pool was right under me. And I was like, if my bloody body splatters on the pool, the pool's going to be closed tomorrow morning. And my suicide is going to fuck up everyone's enjoyment of the pool. So I kept trying to think of different ways to kill myself. I was like, I'll drown myself in the bathtub. And I was like, if I drown myself in the bathtub, then the maid's going to come in. And she's going to find me. I don't want to do that to the maid. And then I had these fantasies. I was like, I could get on my motorcycle and just ride on a two-lane highway through the desert. And when a tractor trailer is coming at me, I'm just going to swerve into it and I'll die immediately. But I was like, that's going to fuck up the guy who's driving the tractor trailer. You know, so it's... Would you have the balls to do that back then? Obviously not, because I, th- I tried to. I tried to, like, yeah. get up the courage to do that. Those so. are dumb questions. Are you still here? So what ended up happening is after the three weeks... You know, 23 days, I cried at the group therapy and I was like, I don't know how I'm going to go back to New York. I don't know how I'm going to face my friends because I had only seen you and Noah. I had seen no other friends. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to face my friends. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through life on a daily basis. I still have so much more work to do in therapy, but like, I don't think seven days is enough. And I promised I wouldn't say anything. (laughs) I did mention this once on my own podcast, but the owner of the facility came to me the next day. And she was like, I talked to your therapist because everyone's assigned their own therapist. Even you do tons of group therapy. And she was like, I talked to your therapist. She thinks you should stay another month. We called your insurance company because I did have health insurance at the time. And uh, she was like, we called your insurance company. They refusing to pay. You know, we know you don't have the money to pay for it. 
to, you know, I they had asked me, my therapist had asked me, I was like, I, I don't have another 60 grand. Yeah. And because I had something we didn't talk about yet is that once I decided, when Dick Dale died, that's the day I decided I was going to kill myself. And that okay. was March, April, something, 2019. But that's the day where I was like, that's it. He was like a father figure to you. In a yeah. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he's a good musician that I worked with for a long time. But that's, I was at a fucking Tony Robbins seminar at the LA Convention Center. Wow. On the Sunday, the fourth day. I was so depressed at that Tony Robbins seminar because I was like, I went there. I spent like three thousand dollars to go to the seminar, hoping Jeez. to find a reason to live because I was super suicidal at that point. And then, then I found out in the middle of that whole thing that Dick died. And I just walked out of the seminar. It was during a break. I looked at my phone. I got word that Dick died. I knew he was sick. I just walked out. I was staying in a motel down by the convention center. I went there. I got on my motorcycle. I rode it to the LAX. Got on a flight to New York. Did the cat convention that I was putting on at yep. the time. As soon as the cat convention finished, I flew back, got my motorcycle, and I was off. And then I saw you at punk rock bowling. If yep. you remember, you actually let me sing. You were fucking part wasted. of a song. You came on stage and sang like either guilty by something, guilty man. by association. And you were so wasted, man. We were, we were nervous. That's when I first saw you, man. You yeah. were like you were barely standing up on that stage. Anybody that saw the performance at the uh, punk rock bowling a couple years ago, my man, Jim, my man yeah, Jay came sorry. on stage and he was so blasted, and I was like. Fuck yeah. this guy okay So from there I took off from Punk Rock Bowling And I went to Zion Bryce Canyon And I was like I didn't think I was going to make it Until the 4th of July That was May 25th or something 2019 Yeah And I was like I'm going to kill myself By the 4th of July And then I started Giving my money away I gave away over $200,000 In like 6 months Every fucking GoFundMe what? I could find If there was some I was just looking on the internet And it was like You know Is there a GoFundMe like, oh, so this guy has this. I had a friend who had a brain tumor. I would just fucking venmo him $5,000 out of the blue. He's like, what? Are, what's this for? And I was like, hey, man, I know you've been having a tough time. I had already given him thousands of dollars when he first wow. got his brain tumor because he couldn't work for a while, but he had already been healed, and I'm sending him money. I was just sending everybody money because I was like, I don't, I don't need this money anymore. And the wow. scariest thing about all that, Toby, was I was like, this is totally rational. In my head during all that time, that like six-month period, I was like, this is completely rational. I'm just going to give all my money away and spend the rest. Like I was just spending it. I was staying in shitty motels until I got to the Cosmopolitan. I wasn't spending a lot of money. I wasn't living large. I was staying in shitty motels. And then I would ride my motorcycle like four or 500 miles a day because that's the only time I didn't want to kill myself was on when the, I was on, the motorcycle. on my motorcycle. Then I'd get off my motorcycle. I remember this one night I tried to fight a fucking cowboy at a bar in Wyoming because he said something like Jesus. he dissed me for being from New York. He's like, yeah, only fucking queers come from New York, right, boy? And I was like, you want to find out? And I took his cowboy hat off his fucking head. And I was like, why, why, you want to find out? Why don't you see if you can get your fucking hat back? And I was like, I think back to that. And I'm like, holy, I literally was trying to die. Because wow. that was all that was in my head. So then that's why I was basically broke by the time I ended up. At the rehab. At the rehab, yeah. And so what I was like, I literally don't have 60 grand. Had I ended up at the rehab six months before, I could have paid for fucking six months of there. Yeah. You know? And so the- But Music the, Cares covered the first month. They covered the first month. They're and amazing. Then, then the owner came to me after I had that breakdown crying, saying I'm not good today at group therapy because I'm not ready to go back to New York. She came to me and she was like, she pulled me aside during lunch. She came into the cafeteria and was like, can you come outside? I want to talk to you. And she was like, I talked to Kelly, your therapist, and- I know you'd like to stay another month. We called your insurance company. Your insurance company won't pay for it. And I was like, yeah, I know. You know, and she put her hands on my shoulders and she was like, 
we're going to keep you here for another month. It's not going to cost you a dime. It's fucking amazing, man. And I was like, and these are, these are for-profit places. Man. Angels, And I was man. like, why are you going to, why? And she's like, you've become very important in this community here. She's like, you have always have great comments to say during group therapy. You come into the morning meetings every morning. You give everyone a hug. Everyone looks up to you. Like, you're a leader in this, in this treatment community, and you're an asset to us. So we want to wow, keep you man. here, and we want to help you get well. And she's like, you cannot tell anyone that I'm doing this. And now they know, but huh. that's amazing. Fucking humans, angels, man. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's you've only always the testament had, you've, of you've this always place. been, you've always had positive energy <laughs> through everything you've been through. You've always been, you're always smiling. But I remember, I remember talking back then about you when you were breaking down talking about how you said like, there was this, there was this persona of Jake, the happy go lucky, crazy, wild, colored hair, colored clothes, outgoing fun, always make everybody laugh. You know, th- that was, a, that was, you were trying to please everybody, but you weren't pleasing yourself. That's You're exactly such a it. giver to everybody else and loving everybody, making everybody else feel good. You weren't taking care of yourself. But people that saw you, like, oh, he's fucking so crazy. He's wild. He's fun. He's living his life to the fullest. Meanwhile, you're fucking running from your life and you had a lot of demons, which you do, which, which I, I just, you know, to, <laughs> you block shit out from your childhood. You know yeah. what I mean? Your whole entire life. Right, and you had never thought about. I, I don't want to get. I mean, you blocked so much out. You, you didn't come out until you started going to this place as a grown man. Yeah, like you then, never thought about any stuff from your childhood. It, it never popped in your head, and you just fucking did something to forget about it real quick. Or when you started spewing your fucking soul to these people at this at the center, that started coming out. It was like deep inside. It was deep inside, and it started coming out. And I, I tried to. I used to try to pretend that the men. Who molested me when I was a kid that I that I had wanted it that I that I had tried to rationalize it that I wasn't the victim that I let it happen because I was excited and I had sexual energy from a young age and didn't know how to express it and I was like I let these guys suck my dick or I let them fuck me in the ass because I just wanted I wanted to see what that was like and and it, it literally dude it started when I was eight or nine Jesus. And then, but it continued. It was like when I went to that boarding school, I've never, I've never told this and I can't believe I'm telling it publicly. I'm not going to say the guy's name, not even say the name of the school right now. But dude, the day before I graduated, the day before graduation, one of the guys who was our dorm parent, who was the person who lived in the dorm was this fucking buff black dude. He was the lacrosse coach and we all thought he was cool. He fucking brought me down into his apartment. This happened a lot of times when I was like 14, 15, 16, this one actually happened when I was 18. And I used to 18? have 18, it was happening all the way up into yeah. your teenage years. I used to have a lot of gay guys tell me, we can tell you're gay. And like, look, I dye my hair pink. I wear pink clothes. I get paint my fingernails. You're a very open-minded human, man. You've always I'm very been. open-minded. And these guys would be like, we can tell that you're gay. It happened in my 20s when I meet people in New York. They're like, you're definitely gay. And I'm like, I'm definitely not gay. I've never been turned on by men. I've always been turned on by women, but I got abused so many times it fucked with my head. And this mm. teacher was like, let's have some wine. And we started drinking wine. And then he ended up fucking me the night before graduation. This is my high school teacher who was oh I was supposed God, to look up to. And he was probably like 30 at that time. And those are things I said that shit in group therapy. And I was like, well, I guess I wanted this. I let it happen because I was like, I remember thinking when I was like 13 and there was this guy who was like getting me high on marijuana and alcohol and was sucking my dick and letting me fuck him in the ass. And I was like, well, if he's sucking my dick, that's not really gay, right? And if I'm fucking him in the ass, that's not really gay. And I convinced myself that as long as I'm having an orgasm, like, I wanted to fuck girls so bad, but no girls would fuck me. So I was like, 
at least I'm getting to have an orgasm, so that's okay. So I said that shit in group therapy when I got down to Florida, and they these people are looking at me like, yeah, that, that wasn't okay. That wasn't what you wanted. Like, you were yeah. taken advantage of from a young age. You were confused, and, and that's when it finally dawned on me. There was this one time, it was an ex-girlfriend who you know, and she, she said one night she was like, have you ever been with a man? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, a bunch of times, like, this happened at this job, this fucking boss fucked me, and this Jeez, and this, and man. I told her, and she just looked at me, like, this was probably 2015, she was looking at me like there was something wrong with me, and it was the first time I had ever said it out loud to anyone, and this is a woman I was very close with, you know, and, like, you know that was a real relationship, you know who I'm talking about, and I was like, she looked at me like there was something wrong with me, and I fucking, I put that way, I hit it so much further than I had ever hit it before, because the one time I was able to be vulnerable and admit it to somebody, she made me feel ashamed about it, and I don't think she meant to at that moment, I yeah. think she just was like, I don't, wait, what? Fuck. Like, I think she was hoping that I would say no, but I think she understood, like, there's something going on here. Yeah, you make me cry, man. So... So yeah, I brought I all you, that man. up at treatment and and then I realized that like, oh my God, wait, all these things, I tried to pretend that I was stronger than. It was like I was not stronger than, but in a roundabout way, what I'm trying to get to is like, now I took off on my motorcycle from New York City with, I came out here, got my camping gear, got my motorcycle, which I had left in Spokane, Washington the day I decided I was going to kill myself. I just left it at the airport. It was still there all that time later and I broke it out of the airport and I just started camping. And I didn't want to fly anywhere and I didn't want to go to events. Obviously, it was a pandemic. But the thing I learned through all of this, Toby, was that like when I say that I'm like as good an example as you could have after going through all of this is like now like, I didn't even want to come see you this weekend. Like I just I ended up I, I t was on my motorcycle camping for two months, sleeping in the woods every night. And that that's when I really realized that I was kind of OK because I was like, I don't need external stimulation. I don't need a podcast. I don't need music blaring all the time. I was like, it's peace, man. It's I, peace. I just have inner peace now that it's not every day and I have to work for it. And I do a lot of meditation. I do yoga. I do therapy twice a week. I was doing it for three times a week yeah. for a long time. So I'm not saying it's just easy, but I've gotten to a place where like, I'm okay being with myself. So now I live in a fucking cabin in the middle of Idaho, in the middle of fucking nowhere, and my friends make fun of me, and you you do a little too, and you're like, <laughs> what are you doing up there? Like, And I'm like, He's in the tree house. I'm just doing nothing, and that's fine. And for my whole life, I could not do nothing. But I, you know why, though? Because you're Jake, the wild guy from New York that was doing everything. Right. You were living your life to the fullest, the most shocking, wild, crazy <laughs> stories, outfits, your you know your pink motorcycle. I still all have the shit. outfits. I'm I still about, wear them. But, but, I, but I, lo I love all that. And and so now it's Jay. It's Jake. You know, 2.0. It's like it's your second chapter of your life. We're like, I just want to live in the woods and fucking chill. That's all I want to do. And so man. coming to like a massive place like Los Angeles, tons of people after being locked down for a year. Dude, it was weird. I, I, I get it. I totally get it. I haven't been a city in a whole year. I went to Phoenix because I left my motorcycle there for the winter. So I rode my motorcycle to Phoenix in October. Then I went to pick it up and I rode it back. But the weirdest thing was when I rode my motorcycle to Phoenix in October, I took like two weeks to get there. And I camped all throughout Utah in the national parks. When I flew back to get my motorcycle in April, I flew to Phoenix and I was going to come by L.A. I was going to see people. When I got on my motorcycle in Phoenix, I rode it straight back to Idaho. And that shocked me because I was like, for the first time in my life, I found a home. 
Yeah, I love that, It's man. just this one-room cabin, and it's nothing nice. 3,000 people live in your town. 3,000. There's a town of 3,000 people that's 20 miles away. Okay. I live up high up in a mountain on a dirt road off of it. I oftentimes don't see people for days at a time. You feel safe there. Dude, I feel safe, but I yeah, I don't need anything. That's That's been the biggest revelation was like, I, I feel comfortable and safe and I don't need external stimulus. We talk on the phone all the time. We talk yeah. on the phone two or three times a week, every total, week total, since the pandemic started. Yeah. That's all I need. I don't need to. And you, okay, now we're going to turn this back to you a little bit. I'll ask you one more question. Did you ever tell your, your, your siblings or your parents about anything happening to you being sexually abused? Dude, I have two older sisters. One's a former heroin addict. Bipolar, diagnosed, refuses to take meds, complete conspiracy theorist, off the reservation. I can't speak with her. I haven't spoken with her in 10 years. I haven't spoken with my mother in four years. Uh, I used to tell my mother about the sexual abuse. Man, I can't believe I'm saying this. People have said, dude, I let my mother into my life so hard when my dad died, and I tried to take care of her. I took her all around the world, dude. I took her to fucking, I can't believe I'm, this is wild. You make me feel safe because you're my because fr- I feel like I'm talking to my friend and I, I, I feel am, like I'm in therapy right now and I'm fucking I, I'm when my dad I, I, I just want to hug you soon. This is when my talking. dad died. He had just retired from his job. He worked like for the Department of uh, Rehabilitation, helping handicapped people for the federal government. Yeah. Um, and he, so he got a pension, and he said to my mother, like, now that I'm retired, I'm going to do all the things you wanted to do that I could never do because now I don't have to work and I'm going to get paid. And he died two years after his retirement, but he got diagnosed with cancer six months later and it was stage four cancer. So there was no quality of life for his retirement. So when he died, I said to my mother, I'm going to do everything dad wanted to do. Dude, I took her to fucking Iceland. I took her to North Dakota because she said she wanted to go to North Dakota. Who the fuck wants to go to North Dakota? I took her to New Orleans. She had always wanted to go to Memphis. I took her to fucking Paris. I took her to Amsterdam. I took her to Spain. Um, Probably more places that I can't think of. And every fucking time, and I, I sold the apartment I had bought in Harlem and moved downtown because she didn't feel safe in Harlem. So she wow. was the root of me selling an apartment that I bought and paid for myself and really fucking loved. And then I sold it and then bought another one that she would feel comfortable in that I never loved. And she would always tell me everything I did for her wasn't good enough. And I would bring her around my friends. I brought her on tour with my Bee Gees band. I brought her over to Europe. I brought her to Colorado for a run of shows. And she would be very nice in front of all my friends. And then we would get back to the hotel. She'd be like, you need to call the front desk. You need to get this room switched. I can smell the cleaning solution they used. Why would you bring me to a hotel like this? Wow. Dude, she was so digging into me. And that drove me fucking bananas too. Like she would always berate me and be like, this hotel isn't nice enough. Why'd you take me to this restaurant? And it's like, you should be, lady, you should be lucky I took you to fucking Iceland. You asked me to take you to Iceland? You should be lucky that her son's alive doing this. Yeah, wanting to do this for her. But. So I haven't talked to my mother in four years. But did years. she know? That, did you try so to? So this is to bring it back. I fucking told my mother when I was a kid. I was like, the neighbor that you are having babysit me because you, you go to work every day. He's he's been touching my penis, and my mother's like, well, that's what boys do. And what? she used to leave me with her uncle, who was a fucking my uncle, who was a psycho, who was her brother, who ended up going to jail for beating up a police officer at her wedding. Like that's the kind of family that we grew up in. This guy used to beat the fuck out of me. And I'd be like, she'd leave me with him for the weekend. He'd fucking have his Doberman Pinchers attack me. And I'd come back and I'd be like, he'd like have a Doberman on a chain and have me against a chain link fence. And the Doberman snarling have an inch from my fucking face. You wonder why I'm scared of dogs? People are like, why are you scared of dogs? This guy used to have his dogs fucking attack me. Used to beat the shit out of me. I'd come home with a black eye and I'd be like, mom, your uncle, uncle Billy's a fucking maniac. Well, he's just trying to make you tough. Like, you know, he he doesn't have a son of his own. 
shit like that. And I just can push that down. So that's more shit that came out at therapy. And then people are looking at me. My mother fucking, it, I told these people in group therapy, they're like, well, what else, what other problems do you have with your mother? And I was like, well, there was that time like we went grocery shopping once and she just left me at the grocery store. And for like five hours, I didn't know what to do. And I ended up fucking walking home and I finally got home. And she was like, oh, I was wondering when you get home. I was like, you, you just let, and shit like that, that is just so, so wild. I can't imagine as a parent, like not listen, just because of what the relationship I had with my son. I mean, we, yeah. we and my wife raised our son with such open communication about anybody bullying you at school, anybody doing this to you, like having open communication and not keep it inside and carry it with the rest of your life. And always like just having that. I can imagine yeah. my son going through anything like that and not and trying to. I just, it's, just this is so heavy, man. It's like the heaviest uh, interview and hangout I've ever done on my podcast. And because I love you, and I know you for so many years, I never heard any of this shit. Well, just like everything else, I tried to project this image that I was like happy-go-lucky and crazy, and I tried to. I think. I tried to like win my mother over much the way I did my dad. I was like, if I do all these right things for my mother, like I'll get her to appreciate and respect me. And then I'll, I'll have healed. These I want to kill somebody who did that to my son. Me and my wife would fucking go after somebody yeah. who's doing that to my child. Yeah. I hadn't talked to my mother for a couple of years before I even went into therapy because I realized it was before I ended up in Florida. Cause I was like, I knew that there was something toxic and dangerous. So why'd there. you cut off four years ago? Why four years ago? Like what happened? The final thing. Um, so my sister who I told you was crazy. Um, so my mother, when I moved to London, I had a lot of money saved up. And when I moved to London, the money you gave away to all your friends. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved to London, I had like, I had over a hundred thousand dollars in cash in a safety deposit box. And when I was moving to London, I brought my mother to New York and I put her on the safety deposit box and I showed her the money. And I was like, if anything ever happens to me while I'm in London, you, you need to have a key to this. Like, this is a lot of money that I don't trust banks, man. I'm a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. I would take money out of the bank wow. and put it away because I was like, who knows what's going to happen? I, mm-hmm. I'm weird like that. I don't know. You know, I was like, I'm not wasn't going to hide it in my walls. Come to find out it wasn't even safe from your mom. So, yeah, I fucking when I, one time I was back from London. I just happened to be back and she called me up and it sounded like a different woman on the phone. And I knew my sister in Boston had gotten the hooks in her because my sister, I have another sister in California. You've never even met because she lives fucking an hour away from here in Mission Viejo, California. She doesn't come to L.A. We're not really friends. Mm. We have a fine relationship. She has two daughters, my nieces. Yeah. You never heard me talk about my nieces. I barely know them. I don't dislike her. Yeah. But. It became obvious my mother was losing her mind a bit. So we had to put up the money to put her in an old folks home. She lives in a f- assisted care facility now. My third sister, who's more successful financially than either of us, the one who's kind of crazy, she makes a great living as a painter and an artist. She refused to put up any money to get my mom in the assisted living home, but she picked it out for her, and it's one right near where she lives. So she started... My mother was already losing her mind. Yeah. And like uh, with what do they call that? Not Alzheimer's dementia. She yeah. like literally doesn't know what's happening a lot. And so when I got her in that facility, me and my sister put up a ton of money to get her in there. And then the pension that my dad had left her is enough to pay her monthly expenses. So we knew she was set for life. We never had to deal with anything else. It cost us over $200,000 to yeah. get her in this house. My third sister wouldn't pay the money. So then my mother started calling me. I need money. What do you need money for? 
you literally have nothing to pay for. There's nothing. Dad's pension is three grand a month. Your monthly fees there are like twenty two hundred. You yeah. have eight hundred dollars a month. You're chilling. I don't have money. I need it. What if I need to pay a bill? Like there's literally no bills. So I knew that my other sister was like taking her leftover money because she's wow. sick. So then one day I get this call while I happen to be in New York and my girlfriend at the time was with me and I put it on speaker and it didn't sound like my mother. It sounded like someone was putting words in her mouth and it was really bizarre. Mm. And she was like, I need $100,000 in cash. And I was like, what? What do you what do you? She's like, I know you have it and you need to bring it to Boston and you need to give it to me. I don't feel safe here without this money and you have it and I want it. And it was like, give me like literally give me one good reason. Like, what do you need the money for? And she's like, I just need the money to feel safe. And I was like, so I literally went with my girlfriend at the time, went to the bank. I hung up the phone. I went to the bank. I took all the money out of that safety deposit box. This is like a fucking Ocean's Eleven movie, dude. <laughs> Holy shit. I took all the money out of that safety deposit box. I opened a separate one, and I signed my girlfriend as the co-signer. And I was like, yo. And she was like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, there's a lot of money here. And all I left in the other box, I didn't close it. I just left my father's military ID that my mother gave me when he died. Wow. And that was it. So then cut to fucking two months later, I fly back to London. I was like, I'm not coming there with the money. Like, I'm not. She keeps asking you for it? Yeah. Okay. So I moved back to London and then I started to stop taking her calls. Then I'm back in New York. It was like the boat season was, I was opening day of the boat season. We had the High Times Cannabis Cup Band doing mm -hmm. the 420 cruise. That's always our opening cruise of the season. Dude, I get a call from my friend Imran, who I've mentioned on my own podcast a couple times, really good friend of mine, happened to be the bank manager. And he's like, there's trouble at the bank right now. He's like, he had moved to a different branch, but he's like, I just got a call from the branch on 20th Street. He's like, there's your mother's there with your sister. And I'm like, my mother has dementia and lives in an old folks home in Massachusetts in Boston. What the fuck? She's like, I don't know, but she's threatened to call the police. She got into the safety deposit box and she's asking where the money is. And I was like, well, I moved it to another box and I had already told it's him your that. money. Yeah. And he was like, I know you did. And I was like, dude, whatever you do, don't let her into that other box because she's screaming to the bank manager. He stole my money. Oh, my. And God. then my sister. So then my phone. I, I was like, dude, I don't know. I call my mother. My sister picks up the phone. Where's mom's money? And I'm like, what? What? what are you She's like, you fucking give You get to the bank right now and you give us this money. I was like, did you take mom out of her old folks home and drive her all the way to New York City? You know? And so I haven't talked to my mother or my sister so you think since your sister then. Put, it up, put her up to yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Because my mother must have told her. It's your money. Oh, obviously. Jake has a lot of money down there in New York. So my. That's fucking scary. Not man. Very scary. So that was that all fucking contributed into holy shit. My mother literally just tried to rob me. So that was 2017. Oh, so two years before I was trying to kill myself like super hardcore. Um, so then there's where it gets a little weird is that my other sister, the one I'm kind of friendly with. When I ended up in this place in Florida, she got a call somehow from my friend Charlie Ended up getting in touch with her. I think I talked to him when I first showed up there. He was one of the first people I called. And I was like, you should probably call my sister. Here's her phone number. Like, let her know where I am and what's going on and that I'm safe. And she called me two weeks later. Like, when she finally got a hold of me because they wouldn't let me accept phone calls yeah, for remember, a little I bit. That, yeah. You were trying to call me. And yeah, they were yeah. like, yeah, we don't. So, you, would, you would call me from a different number sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So then my sister called and she was. I was like, oh, yeah, you found, like, yeah, this is what's going on. Like, I and I was like, I said something. I was like, did you tell the girls that I'm here? Like your your daughters? And she's like, yeah, I, I just told them like they're 
their father's cousin's kid um, was addicted to heroin. So I, I just told them that you're in one of those places that you have a drug problem. And I was like, I don't have a drug problem. That's not why I'm here. I was suicidal. A lot of it had to do with mom. Like, mm. And she was like, yeah, but I don't know that I could explain that to them. So I just told them that you have a drug problem. And I was like, what? Jesus, and to this day, we kind of maintain a good relationship. But I've tried to tell her a few times. Yeah. The last time I tried to tell her was on Mother's Day. And I was like, I was like, Mother's Day is really hard for me, especially this year and last year. Because I was like, I want to reach out to my mother. And I want to tell her, like, I haven't talked to you in four years. And I want you to be safe and happy and I want you to live out the rest of your days and I want you to die with a smile on your face, but you're never going to talk to me again because you're a toxic person. And if I open my life to you, you're going to say some things that I won't be able to hear. I won't be able to process. Yeah. So I kind of want to send her a letter or call her. But if I do, it's I've worked yeah. so hard to get where I am now. Totally. Is there some resentment? I mean, I'm not if that's the right word, but like for her, all, all, all all your sexual abuse that you encountered at such a young age to even when you were 18 that you had nobody to, to save you from that even your even your even your mom and she didn't believe that so do you resent her for that or is there some deep down there's got to be some deep down shit my mother was abused by her dad because your parents are supposed to protect you my mother was physically abused by her dad not sexually but he beat up my mother and her two brothers and mm. she never stopped telling me that never stopped describing it my whole life in graphic detail and what i learned in therapy was that that's called generational trauma. And what my mother thought she was doing was protecting me from knowing about that. But she would, dude, from when I was a kid, she would fucking cry, scream, thinking her dad was beating her up and describe it in vivid detail to me. And apparently in the therapy world, what that does is called generational trauma. She's passing it on to me. But she used to tell me that I'm never going to let this happen to you. So I don't mm. I don't hold a grudge against her. That's the thing. I don't. I, I think she thought in her own twisted way that she was providing a better life because she wasn't physically abusing me. So it's it's really weird and fucked up because, yeah, like, yeah, I'd like to kill her, you know, and she used to tell me from when I was a kid, if I ever end up in an old folks home, I want you to smother my face with a pillow till I'm dead. She used to say things like that to me. Jesus. My whole life, she said to me, if I ever had to, I'm the th keep in mind, I'm the third of three children. Yeah, I had a my sister that's eight years older and six years older and then so i used to ask my mother was i a mistake and she's like no no i really wanted you but i can't tell you the dozens of times she said to me because you know i had a vasectomy i asked for my mother for one for my 18th birthday because i knew i didn't want kids probably because i knew i was too crazy nowadays i kind of wish i had a kid because i think i would mm. be an amazing dad i probably never will yeah I'm a little too old but I love being uncles now to yeah. my friend's kids up in Idaho. He's a three-year-old. I fucking yeah. love it. I was reading a book to a fucking six-year-old in, in Boise the other night before I flew here. And I was like, man, I'm good at this. You know what I yeah. mean? And I'm even good with your son, Max, even yeah, though you we, are great. Uh, we fuck around and we talk about, you know, yeah, silly shit. bone and broads and stuff. But um, my mother has said dozens of times. Like, I understand why you'd want a vasectomy. And if I had to do life over again, I would only had one kid. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm happy I had you and your other sister. But, yeah. like, I wish I had only had one kid. Wow. And man. I never thought that was weird until therapy. And then my therapist Fuck. is like, that's not what you need to hear from your mother, that she no. wish you were never born, you know? Maybe she has a lot of guilt, too, because if I found out later on in life what happened, that that happened to my child... I would feel so guilty for not being there for, to protect him or listen to him when he tried to even fucking tell me what was going on. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's a lot to live with as a parent as well. On the one hand, I... I I'd be apologize. I'd be like... On the one me. hand, I'm furious, but fury is not going to get me anywhere. And, and I, I learned in therapy, one of the most important things I can learn is that, like, 
I don't have to let my mother back into my life, and I don't. Ha- but I don't have to hold a grudge against her. Um, you remember that last band I had, White Collar Crime? I had a song called Forgive and Remember. Okay. And there's forgive and forget means one thing, but why would you forget? No, forgive and remember. Like, I forgive my mother, but I remember what she did to me, and that's going to keep me from letting her into my life again. Yeah. Because I'm not going to let her hurt me again, because I don't think she knows how to care for me, and yeah. wouldn't. So... As much as I wish I could call her on Mother's Day and she's about to, she's going to be 80 years old on July 8th. And I wish I could call her and say, hey, I, I know you tried, but you fucked me up really bad. But mm. I know you tried and I don't hate you, but I can never speak to you again. That's the message I'd like to get through to her. But I, at this point, I think she's so lost to dementia. I don't think she'd understand. And it fucking hurts me. And I'm saying it very matter of factly now, but it hurts me that I don't have a relationship with her. And I think a lot of my friends they're they're very confused why she stopped showing up in new york and i've just told she's old now you know but they're like i I told a few friends after the thing where she tried to rob me i told some friends like yeah i haven't spoken with her in a year they're like what that's your mother and like i couldn't be like well you know yeah so yeah i'm not really mad at her and i guess the the point of all this is that you seem like you're in a good place though now i'm in a great place man And, and like I've kind of processed that all these things happened to me. They happened to me. They didn't happen because of me. I didn't ask for them, and I survived them, and I don't want to kill myself anymore. And like, You didn't deserve them. It wasn't your fault. Yeah. I didn't deserve to get beat up at the juggalo thing. I didn't deserve to f- fall off a roof, but m- more so it's, th- it's the actual physical aggressors in my life that took advantage of me. Like, yes. I didn't ask for it's any horrible, of that. Man. Now I understand I didn't ask for it. That's their problem, man, and it's almost like, it's almost like some Jesus shit like to sin is human to forgive is divine mm-hmm. and it's like i forgive these people you know like they gotta live with themselves i'm sure they have a lot of guilt it sucked for me for a long time but now i'm like yeah maybe maybe the reason i paint my fucking nails and watch transsexual porn is because the first sexual experiences i had was with a guy fucking putting a penis in my mouth you know and it, that still turns wow. me on and that's fucking weird and it's weird to say out loud but there's I've read a lot of stuff about this and it's those th- the first things that ever happen to you sexually are the ones that are imprinted in your brain in a way that'll never be unimprinted. So I don't I don't seek gay sex, but I have those thoughts and maybe that's why I grow my hair long and maybe I have fucking paint my fingernails. But I love women and that's the only thing I'm actually attracted to and like want to form that emotional bond with. Maybe it's because I don't have one with my mother. I don't know. Like, I'm still working through a lot of this yeah. stuff. But what, what I'm getting at is, like, I don't hold a lot of grudges anymore. And I don't sit around and I'm not mad at people. I'm just happy with myself. It's so easy for you to say this now. But it, but for me, as your friend, for me, it's, I'm, still, I'm, it's just, I'm trying to digest all this stuff. Because I, I didn't know any of this stuff about you. I know you had serious trauma. I know you've been through a lot of shit. I know you, like, you've covered it up most of your life. But now you're, like, just being so raw about it. I think this is a really... Um, one of the most most important conversations I probably ever had on this podcast. You want to know the thing? I'm and, mo- and because I love you, my friend. But now, to know everything you've been through, it's fuck, yeah. man. You know the thing I'm most ashamed about and have have yet to admit publicly till now that I wear hearing aids. Hmm. I'm not even kidding. We you yeah, know so you why, and Max so, yeah, noticed so, so them so last what, night, and yeah, I, so I avoided the is conversation. It because of music, your whole life. I think it's a combination of things. My dad and grandfather were hard of hearing. Um, I started noticing I wasn't having great hearing in my 20s. I started getting wearing earplugs, custom molded earplugs. Um, I haven't talked about this in my podcast. I've been meaning to. Nobody's seen my hearing aids before because I've had long hair. Yeah. But if you don't see me right now, I shaved the sides of my head and cut the top of my hair. So I have a crazy mullet. So it was very obvious that I was hearing, wearing hearing aids. Max yeah. brought it up last yeah, night. You brought it up and you notice I fucking... 
I was like, leave me alone about it. And I fucking disappeared into my What bedroom. I noticed last night that I would say something to you from not even that far on the couch to where I was sitting. And you would say, you would say something completely opposite. So you might have to turn those shits up a little bit. I'm not sure like what yeah. the volume is on there, but they're not the best. Is it because you've been booking bands your whole life and being around live music? I think it's 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 a combination of genetic. It's a combination of not looking after my hearing, and I would hugely encourage anyone to be around live music a lot. But but that's not it because you've been around live music a lot too, right? Your whole life you've on yeah. stage with monitors. Yeah. Um. But I also learned that it's hereditary. It's hereditary, but it also comes from multiple concussions. And oh shit! You know, falling off roofs and the Juggalo instance, smack with a rock. I used to have a little tinnitus and a little ringing in my ears, and I had got I got my hearing checked. That happened. That whole incident happened in 2012. I started getting my hearing checked in 2008 when I started the Bee Gees band because I started getting ringing in my ears, but the ringing would go away after a day. And then I went to get custom old earplugs. I tested my hearing. I remember back then, 2008, they told me I had like 65% of the hearing I should, and then I got scared. So then I started wearing custom molded earplugs all the time. But then at the gathering of the Juggalos, when I got beat up real bad, I woke up the next day and had intense ringing in my ears that has literally never gone away. And I researched it, and concussions can lead to permanent hearing loss. And then that motorcycle accident I got in in 2017 up in Yosemite. You remember that? I had a really bad crash, uh, which... I had probably got a concussion from that. My helmet was completely gouged. I went down at like 45 miles an hour. And it, that made, it's been worse since then. And then when I went to the place in Florida, all that group therapy, I would started complaining from the moment I got there. I was like, can you speak louder? I can't hear you in group therapy. And, mm. and people in these therapy sessions don't speak loudly because yeah. they're victims of trauma. I speak loudly because I'm an exuberant person and probably yes. also because I'm a little deaf. Um, but a lot of people were like, Hey, yeah, so this happened to me. Mm. And I literally couldn't hear them. So they, one day one of the counselors came to me and was like, try these hearing aids on. So they took me, they worked amazingly well, dude. And he had gotten them at Sam's Club. So they took me to a Sam's Club. They made an appointment. I went in there. They told me I had 45% of the hearing that I should have. Holy fuck. And they fitted me with hearing aids. But the cheapest ones they had were $1,000 for a pair. And that's what I bought. And I had to put them on my credit card. And wow, I've been wearing them ever since. They're not the best hearing aids. Like, you know, I can get much better ones, but I literally can't afford them because I came out of a call. I came out of the treatment center in Florida. I, you know, I was supposed to have a concert cruise season in 2020. And I I had like I was supposed to have um, our kickoff for the 2020 season was um, uh, Major Laser, which is Diplo's band. Yeah, they could sell out arenas. They decided to play our boat to kick off their new album. The shit was sold out in advance. That was March 14th. We had to cancel that show. I had such a great lineup of shows. I was going to make a fortune in 2020. We had my 50th birthday party that sold out in Vance in yeah. New York. That was exciting. That was supposed to be April 8th. If, if anybody listening works for a hearing aid company, I'm not even joking, like a hearing aid company, what, what company do you use, Jake, for your hearing aid company? Thank you, Toby. No, wh- no what, what brand is it? It's, f- it's from fucking Sam's Club, man. Fuck, it's I'm like not trying Walmart. to make you cry, man. Fuck. <laughs> so if you have a hearing aid company out there and maybe you want to sponsor my man Jake who has a podcast as well, yeah. he's a fucking incredible human. So. And this is the most emotional podcast I've ever fucking done and Jake's crying now and I feel like hugging him right now. Dude, when I first put on my hearing aids, <sighs> I could. there was a fountain outside the house in Ocala and I could hear the water hitting the ground, which I hadn't heard in years. Oh, wow. I was going for runs in the woods every day. I could hear leaves rustle in the woods that I hadn't heard in fucking 15 years. I didn't know all the things I missed. It was 15 years of hearing, you think? Fuck. Yeah. And like, I can hear birds chirp. 
if I go for a hike up in Idaho now where I live and I don't have my hearing aids in, I might as well be. It's almost like I have hear, earplugs in. Then I put my hearing aids in and they don't work that well. Yeah. But they work way better. And I still have a hard time hearing people. And that's that's why I don't wear my hearing aids a lot. Why I'm sensitive about it. Because like last night I still can't hear you. I hear so much better with them in uh. than, than, I, than I do without them in. But I know that they don't work well because my hearing's so fucked up. But it's all I could afford. Yeah, I'm gonna get <laughs> like fucking, I, I'm getting hearing aid sponsored for this. My man, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make some more money, and I'm gonna be fine. Like you said earlier today, you were like, "Remember when you used to have a lot of money?" And you're joking about it, and it's like, "Well, yeah, it's so much fucking money." My I didn't grow. But up I didn't realize you gave money. it all away too, man. You're yeah. just so generous. You give it to all your friends. Well, that's people. that's why when that's why I got free a free month. You know what I mean? In yeah. Florida, like I have great karma, and I'm not worried about like I'm gonna make money back. I'm not. I'm a fucking hustler. You know what you I mean? Are, I'm not gonna dude. be broke forever. But there's only so many ways you can make. You money about back. to open a comedy club in New York? Yeah. Yeah. You took a comedy club over. Yeah, you I was. I was in the so much. process of buying Dangerfields in you, New York. I think you took me to see Bill Burr. I think you took me to see him for the first time or something. Yeah, oh. you were obsessed with comedy, man. This is this is is this like therapy? This is like fucking therapy. Yeah, it is. I can't believe I'm saying all this, but well, you here? Well, let's get let's get. You to know some. what's funny is all the things I've just said to you that I've never said before. The the most shameful thing is I've been afraid to admit that I wear hearing aids. Out of everything that's happened to you, <laughs> that's the touchiest fucking thing, man. Are you no embarrassed problem. because you can't hear, right? Yes, and I learned that all that also factored into my depression because a lot of times we'd be out at dinner or whatever with big groups, yeah. not just us, yeah. but like there's conversations happening on the other side of the table and I wouldn't understand like, what people are saying and I did a lot of reading about how fuck. hearing loss affects mental health and it makes you feel more and more isolated. So if you're already course. suffering from anxiety and depression and you feel like what depression does to people is like it it makes you think that nobody cares about you, even if your friends are telling them that you they, they love care them about and you. They're there for you, yeah. So it was like I'd be out at dinner with a group or something, and they're talking on the other side of the table, and I literally can't hear them. And then I'd be like, "What?" And then they'd like laugh at me. Oh, you can't hear me, and they don't understand because I'm not communicating effectively because I'm anxious and depressed. And then mm. I'd go home feeling more and more lonely and isolated. Fuck, man. And so, yeah. But Let's get I'm, to something positive, Unicorn Man. <laughs> okay. Why you're in town, too. Um, <laughs> why I'm in town? Okay, so I've been loving living in this fucking place up in Idaho, man. I don't want to go anywhere. Like I know. I, I, know. I, I don't want to go anywhere, and you called me I up. I appreciate you, you coming. You hit me up a couple of weeks ago, and you're like, come to this show. So H2O tomorrow. As we record this, it is May 26th. Wednesday, May 26th, so we're recording this. And Saturday, May 29th, H2O is playing a one-day outdoor show. Our first show back since January of 2020. Yeah, first show back in fucking 18 months, 17 months, literally. And you were like, come to our show in Phoenix. And I was like, I was just in Phoenix to get my motorcycle. I don't want to come. And you're like, it would mean a lot to me. You said to me, it would mean a lot to me if you were there for our first show back. And I was like, Toby, I don't want to. Like, and I'm doing this thing Friday night as well. I was going to do that myself. Well, that's what I'm going to yeah. get to. Go and you were like, it would mean a lot to me if you were there to see my for my band's first performance on stage. And then you were like. Plus, you're always fucking traveling. Well, right. I'm used to being travel yeah. guy. So you gave me a hard time. And you were like, you travel everywhere. You go everywhere. And I was like, yeah, but I just like being up here, man. Like, I finally found a place where I'm comfortable. And then you told me, you were like, Jake, you need to come because. I'm doing this Friday night. This Friday. Toby and Moon's 25th wedding anniversary is Friday night, May, May 28th. 28th. And I didn't, know, I didn't know you were. Arthur Dane, what's it called? I'm an ordained minister. And Toby was like, I want you. We're, we're going to surprise Moon. I'm running a big Airbnb. We're going to surprise Moon. I was just going to do it myself with nobody. Yeah. yeah. Going to renew my vows. My vows. And you were like, 
will you be the minister? I didn't realize this? you did that. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking amazing. Once we started talking about it, like you're gonna, I want you to come down then and be the, I want you to be the minister for the renewal of our vows. And then you were like, how can we make it special? And I was like, I can bring, I can bring one of those big furry unicorn suits. So <laughs> what we're gonna do is everyone's gonna be at this Airbnb. Tons of your friends are coming. Yeah. And we're going to surprise Moon. At one point, you and Max are going to change into suits. Yes. I'm going to put on the unicorn suit. We're all going to come out of the into the living room and be like, ladies oh. and gentlemen, can we have your attention in yes. honor of Moon and Max's 25th anniversary? Moon and Toby, not Moon, Moon and, and Toby's 25th <laughs> anniversary. And uh. we do my vows on Friday. I'm so fucking excited, man. You know what? I wouldn't want anybody in the whole world to do this, man. <laughs> no, for real, man. So I got, so this thing came in the middle. It looked like a fucking plastic bag of um, cotton candy. And I realized this dude ordered a fucking um, uh, uh, suit from Amazon unicorn suit, but it's shrink wrapped. It's interesting. Yeah, they, they I saw somebody put a prank on me or something. They shrink wrap it and in vacuum seal it, so it's like okay. a compressed brick of multi. It's yeah. pink and purple and baby blue. I'm but excited yeah, for this. I had a ship because I don't I don't like uh, checking bags. Yeah. So I didn't. I have unicorn suits at home. I uh, yeah. I keep <laughs> I keep unicorn suits stashed. Um, um. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that to have you here and um. Fuck, man, this is, you know, everybody, everybody's been listening to this podcast since day one, 2019, my mom, all my friends, all my journeys, all different people who have been part of my life and inspire people. This is one person that you probably see me do pictures with us or talk <laughs> about Jake Rock's off and stuff like that. But to have you on the podcast, which was supposed to be me doing your podcast, but now I realize that your story <laughs> needs to be told to as many people as possible and your honesty. It is the most <laughs> honest, emotional, fucking heaviest thing I've ever conversation i've had with a friend ever man and i love you and i appreciate your fucking uh, just honesty man well, i know we're, this is we're short on time because we have other things nah, to no do fuck, tonight but nah, there's no fucking short time dude I, I have some questions for you let's do because, it because look you're you're early on i don't know if it was your very first episode but you interviewed your mother yes about your childhood and look i had my own problems with childhood that we just talked about but your father died when you were a baby yeah how old three three years old right which is part of why three is your magic number so you you, exactly. you don't have that many memories of your father you're the youngest couple photos of, couple the stories youngest of three brothers yeah like i had a rough childhood i found drugs i found alcohol we just i heard found it, man. insanity I, everything yeah dude. but so do you man and and what i was going to talk to you about today when i thought this was going to be my podcast <laughs> fridays with friends which is a bonus episode of tuesdays with jakey so if this is toby's podcast by the way i started a podcast back in december when i really decided i was going to live in it. idaho but I just want to say that I started a podcast called Tuesdays with Jakey where I just talk by myself. I've had no guests. I just talk for an hour. And it was honestly, it was a way for me to mark weeks. And, and it's also like, therapeutic, man. Yeah. Well, that's what it became. But I was like, I'm just going to start this podcast. I don't know if anyone's going to listen. It's become very popular. I've shared with you the people who yep. were like, man, the way you're telling your stories. But usually I just ramble for an hour without anyone asking me any questions. But what I want to ask you, and the reason I wanted to have you on as a friend was because a lot of people are saying that my story inspires them. And like, I I did all this crazy, insane shit, and you had a very tough childhood. You know, you guys didn't grow up with any money. You had older brothers that took like took you to punk rock shows as a way of babysitting you. And, yeah. and now that I'm saying this, I'm like, well, how'd you become so well-adjusted? But look at you. You're covered with tattoos all the way from your the bottom of your feet to the top of your fucking throat. Yeah. Um, I guess we all deal with things differently, but you've never once used a drug. You've never once used alcohol. Your fucking podcast is called One Life, One Chance. You promote PMA, which is positive mental attitude. Everybody knows Toby is a super positive guy, and I know you have your own struggles sometimes, and you, you get a little sad and down. I don't know if you'd call it depression. Yeah. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, like, how, how have you 
fought through all this adversity and you know your band was quite popular in the 90s and then for a minute it looked like your band was over you thought about quitting your band you've told me like it's a real arc it wasn't like h2o got super popular and stayed there mm-hmm. like you've it's been a fucking it's been real a lot of peaks and valleys so you know the main question i don't want to be here for another two hours but like how the fuck have you overcome all these challenges in your life and managed to come out the other side as such a positive inspiration to so many people i i think for me it was um i think for me it was timing and it was uh the connection to punk rock through my brothers that i i, I through, through lyrics of other bands i've found other people singers and bands you know as father figures i feel like when i when my brothers took me to that show it was this love and family and unity thing that i really wasn't like that at my house because my it was my two brothers raising me and my mom was working those jobs but the father figure thing i really connected with punk rock and like kevin seconds number one like his lyrics everything about him in mckay for straight just the whole everything about finding about straight edge and not trying anything after i first heard that band and connected to that 13 years old and made a commitment that I would never do drugs and alcohol because I don't need to because this band's singing about it and I can fucking skate to them and I, I love punk rock and this is this is who I'm going to be like I, I don't know how or where that came from maybe it was out of fear because I saw my brothers drinking and partying and doing their thing smoking weed which I thought was the most craziest thing like them drinking Budweiser and smoking cigarettes and weed back then I was like it was so scary my mom smoked and drank, but it was my brothers, you know? And um, I feel like it was the timing for me, being kind of scared straight from my brothers, that I, I, I don't know what it's in because I'm not the most secure. Uh, I'm, I'm a very sensitive person, a uh, very emotional person. Um, I don't know how I could have that conviction at such a young age to say, I'm never going to fucking try anything ever. And I'm going to go through my whole life like this. People can offer me shit. They can say I'm not cool. They can call me names. And I'm still, I'm still, I'm still going to be me, but I don't have to do what they're doing to fit in. I, I don't know what, I don't know what it was, man. I just stuck like that my whole fucking life. And, um, I never had therapy, which is really strange because I, I'm a very emotional person, especially anything becoming a dad anything with dads or death or family members even fucking uh finding nemo like the the, the mom or dad dies all that shit like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fucking wreck dude and i feel like music has been my therapy and when i started writing and journaling my feelings as a roadie for sick of it all before my band started i vented through that way um i i, I don't know man and i found I, everything up in punk rock for me i found the positive aspects to it obviously punk rock and hardcore is not always positive but the bands that i connected to and the movement i was part of and um animal rights and being straight edge and um not hurting myself or hurting others all that i I, I don't know that's always been a positive thing for me and and i just loved it and um i just feel like i just connected to that i could have took a totally different path i could have took like oh my dad died fuck it because my brother was like one time made a sign on the on a tree outside like fuck god or something like that because my mom raised us catholic going to church all the time and after my dad was taken away by dad my brother's like yo there is no fucking god like why would he take my dad if there was a god you know and my brother's todd became more rebellious and so did my brother tracy but i, I don't know what it was man I, I don't know how i've kept this way my whole life i've always seen the good in people i've always um tried to be positive i always tried to um be a healthy person uh, physically and mentally I'm not perfect. I don't wake up every day thinking the world's fucking great. I do tend to live in my PMA bubble and think that the world's going to be wonderful one day and all this stuff. You know what I'm saying? I live in this kind of world of like, 
I want everything to be great and I want the world to be like a wonderful place, but I know it's a, it's a fucked up place. And when you become a parent, you really, then you, you can't hide from that. You see the reality of like, oh, my son's in this world now. I have to protect him from this and that and this and that. And um, yeah, I, I don't know, man, because I didn't, I don't have a dad that I could say, hey, um, remember you took me fishing or tell me how to build this fucking tackle box. Oh, any of that shit. I never had any of that. I don't know why. I've always been like this. I've always been very hyper, very high on life very outgoing, a people person, person. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I, I have my fucking dark times. I have, I guess you could call it, I don't want to say depression because depression is a real thing that people actually go through. I don't want to put a label on, but yeah, I've been not, not always happy. You know, I get sad about things. The world bums me out, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm very happy to be alive. I'm very lucky to do what I love. Like you said, we've had highs and lows with my band. Um, and becoming a parent and marrying my best friend for 25 years. Like this is, this is, I, I'm very lucky to have um, my wife. She's been everything to me my whole life. My best friend, my rock, everything. And then making a child with her out of pure love and raising that, raising my son who is today. Like, I don't know. I just, I, 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 I hate the word. People say the word blessed. Like I worked hard for, I worked for hard for everything that I've done in music. I've always worked hard with that. And, um, but I felt I do have a blessed life as far as I get to do my love, get to do what I love, get to travel with my family and write songs and play music with my best friends. I don't know. No, I, I appreciate everything that's happened in my life because it could have took that one thing could have changed everything. My dad not being there. You know what I mean? I could have found a father figure in somebody who was a drug addict who turned me on to drugs and stepped there found that other people were doing positive things. I, I don't know, man. Isn't it amazing to look back and realize that like, one little thing could have changed your life like what if you didn't take that job for sick of it all yeah and you didn't end up journaling and then you didn't end up getting to sing a song with them during their encores right and mm -hmm. then you never would have been inspired to start your own band like yeah all that it's like, timey moving to new york by myself and like leaving the nest and going there yeah i i don't know my mom kicked me out when i was like 17 i still think about to that this day i didn't talk to her for such a long time you know, she's like, you didn't get a job by this date after graduation, you're out. And I didn't get a job until after I got a job at the steakhouse on Solomon's Island. I was a dishwasher. But it, it passed her deadline, and she had this boyfriend who was a total asshole, and he fucking had her against me, and they kicked me fucking out, man. He used to skin squirrels and make squirrel soup in the garage. He had skin squirrels hanging up in there and shit. Crazy shit, man. I swear to God. Gross, man. Um, I, I don't know what. I just always, I've always kind of stayed in my lane, too, as well, and it just... Just did my thing. I don't. I don't know, man. I just. I don't know why. I don't know. I know. I definitely have. I get sad about things, and like you said, like I'm not always positive. But it's a struggle for everybody. I feel like exercise and diet and how you treat your body affects your mind and everything. And I've always focused on that. I really feel that. That's interesting. I want to bring something up. Obviously, I have an outrageous look, right, with the colored hair and painting my nails and wearing super colorful clothes, and you probably bring some of that back to the sexual trauma that I've experienced, but. You you have, you also have a very outwardly outrageous look. You're literally <laughs> covered in tattoos. Like have that's you ever, my addiction, I guess. Have you ever given any thought to what what made you want to not just get tattoos, but completely cover yourself? Even to the point that I'm looking now, and I remember a few years ago, you you had every little piece that was between tattoos filled in with dots and X's. Yeah. Like what what do you think made it? Thankfully, you haven't gotten your face tattooed yet, and I, I just, I'm not such, doing that. It's such a pretty handsome. That's face, what I'm not going to do. I'm not doing that. I'm too handsome. Okay. Um, I guess it was part of the punk rock world that I was in. The guy, sick of it all, guys. We, I got the sick of it all dragon back then, and I got a taste of when I turned eighteen of my first tattoo. I just loved how it looked. I loved the experience of getting tattooed. 
I loved how it looked on people and people I looked up to and just being part of that scene. And it just became something where it just became a real addiction. And it's how I express myself. I wore my heart on my sleeve. I don't do drugs. I don't drug. I don't do animals. But this is me, how I, how, how, how I express myself on my skin. I wear my heart on my sleeve. And it's just something that just really took over me. And it's a serious addiction. Like I saw a picture of myself a couple years ago. And, and there's this one spot on my leg. I didn't have one. It wasn't like, holy shit, you're totally covered. It's like, no, there's that one spot you have to feel. And anybody that's fully full body tattooed, like me, it's a real addiction, man. Like, I would never stop getting tattooed. Even it's like small fucking dot somewhere. Yeah, and you, you you still have a little room. And I, you know, I can see like on your Gorilla Biscuits tattoo, yeah. it's like, yeah, you can give him tattoos and stuff like that. But I, have I, you, I have you ever considered was. that maybe you, you... You tell me what you think it is. I, I think maybe it might have something to do with... You know, you you didn't have a father figure. You didn't have a dad. You got brought into this community that was punk rock that was all about tough guys. And you were a really sensitive, emotional, caring yeah. dude. Do you think maybe that you built this exterior for yourself to look like a hard, tough guy mm. um, so that people wouldn't wouldn't challenge you on your emotional stuff? And well, that, it, that it was almost like a superhero cape, so to speak? Well, I like the tattoos. Yes, I, I wasn't. A t- I, I, I'm not a tough guy. And I was a tough guy. I moved to New York from Southern Maryland. I'd gone to shows in Washington, D.C., and saw some of the greatest concerts. And before that, lived in Newport, Rhode Island, where I grew up with John Jones, Chris Jones, sang a verbal song. I got to go to all the shows in Rhode Island and Providence and Boston and all that. And I just liked, it wasn't about being tough. I, I loved the way the tattoos look. I just loved them. And I was a very sensitive person. I wasn't, I was not a fighter. No, I just loved how it looked. Um, and the people I hung out with were heavily tattooed and they inspired me to do that. But I, I never thought the tattoos made you tough. Like, I, I, it's just ink on your body. Maybe, you know, I, I got a tougher skin move in New York by people like calling me names and calling me like the hick from Maryland. It's breaking my balls like that New York tough love I talk about a million times in this podcast where it was that tough ball breaking New York love where people were just like fuck with you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like we do to each other. Exactly. Yeah, for but the years. for me, yeah, it wasn't about wanting to be look, look tough. I, I, just, I just love the way tattoos look. I don't know. And once I got one, I had to balance the other arm and then balance my forearm with the other forearm. Like I have a quad, a quality. I have, e, I have ET on my leg, a huge ET tattoo. Like I wasn't getting prints on your fan. Yeah, I have all kinds of shit. Like I was never, I don't know. That's the one thing too. I feel like that, that all my friends that opened arms to me when I went to New York and took me in is that I was myself. I wasn't trying to be like them. I didn't. I wasn't born and raised in New York. I came from Maryland to Rhode Island. I mean uh, Massachusetts to Rhode Island to Maryland to New York. Like I wasn't from there, but I was. I was accepted. My band was brought into that family. You know what I mean? Like, and New York was a tougher, scarier place. I moved when I was 18. I got dropped off at fucking Token Entry Show. I was moving in with Timmy Chunks that night, who I'd been pen pals with for like a year. So getting dropped off to that, I was like, holy shit, you know? Maybe, maybe it was mentally some armor I put on my ass. Maybe. I don't know. This, this conversation is giving me a whole new appreciation for how many parallels we have, even though yeah. we're completely different people. Um, and yeah. w- one of the things I've always found most fascinating about you is that, like, People call H2O a hardcore band. You're proud of being part of the hardcore community, but yeah. H2O is unlike any other hardcore band because you, you're kind of like a pop band. And obviously you play in the punk world, but like your songs have great melodies, great lyrics, great messages. A lot of hardcore bands have great messages, obviously Gorilla Biscuits, but you've always sung with much more melody 
and written your lyrics with a lot more emotion and worn that on your sleeve through the way you sing your songs. You don't shout and scream like most hardcore bands do, mm-hmm. almost never. And uh, I think that's what's made set H2O apart from so many other bands and made that personal connection because you're not screaming at people, you're singing to them, and people can actually sing along with your song. So there's a lot of bands. I don't, I don't, I don't want to call them out specifically yeah. because I just don't want to, you know, I'm not thinking of exactly, but a lot of hardcore bands just yell and scream. And you can only listen to that when you're in a certain mood. But H2O songs make people happy. They, they do for me, man. I put Thank on you. H2O a lot and have literally my entire life. Thank you, know? you, man. And I think that's one of the things that is the reason why you resonate so hard with people in a positive vibe. Because you can be there through every phase of somebody's life. Not just when they need to get amped or angry or go skateboarding mm. or something, you know? Thank you, man. I mean, that's us. That's me and Rusty and Todd and all of us going to shows in D.C. Loving Scream, Marginal Man Government Issue. Pagazi, seven seconds, seven seconds, but a lot of the DC stuff, Soul Side, uh, I said Marginal Man, um, so many great bands, King Face, a lot of great bands in DC. We got to see that melody, that summer of love, that you know, I guess I want to say the emo, seeing Embrace and Rights of Spring, and um, yeah. So then, then moving to New York and loving, I mean, Token Entry had melody, Murphy's Law has melody, Gorilla Biscuits have melody. You know, they have melody, they have they have catchy songs. You know, not all the New York stuff was one style. You know, it had that edge. It all has an edge because it's New York and different boroughs, but um, and streets, street style. But yeah, we weren't from New York, and I think that's we didn't go to New York and try to sound like a New York band. We came to New York as all dudes who moved to New York to start the band, and we used all of our influences, including New York bands as well. But we took everything we grew up on, and that's what came out as H2O. And I think because I was tattooed, shaved head, people, a roadie who I hung out with, that when they first, the first seven inch or moon on the cover, and we had temperature on there, and I forgot the other song, we had a love song, I don't know why in temperature, people were like, holy shit, this dude's singing? You know what I mean? Like, cause I don't know, just, I'm not a screamer. You know, I'm not like, I could have totally went that route. Like, we're going to be a New York band. I'm going to try to sound like these New York bands. And I'm not going to sing. I'm going to yell. But I don't know. I just, my voice wasn't like that. I like, I like melody. I've always loved melodies, man. Yeah. yeah. And you I, too, I, everything. I yeah. know the kind of music you like because I tease you about it a lot. But we also listen to a lot of music together and in, yeah. when we're in the car together and actually, you know, trade songs around and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think another thing that obviously set you apart in a way that I hadn't really seen from other people is like you connected with fans like when when i was just working at wetlands before i was booking shows you came to a lot of shows and when it was your own show you didn't hang out backstage most of the people would hang out backstage with just the other band people but you were the guy out watching other bands talking to fans taking pictures with them just you knew everybody's name you used to always come to the front door when i was working what's up jake that's right even before we were friends we were always like i always felt like i knew you way before i knew you and i think everyone who likes h2o and still to this day you wouldn't believe how many people like you know follow you on instagram you post a picture of the two of us and i'll get a message from someone in germany who's seen my bg's band and be like oh my god i can't believe you know toby moss huh what is he like you know and it's like like yeah people feel like they're your friend you know because because you're so honest and open and raw and emotionally, even to this day, you Definitely don't hide backstage. Like yeah. you're the kind of guy. Like someone will come up to you at Crossroads or whatever, and you'll be like, "Come sit at the table. Let's talk." Oh yeah, here's my phone number. Oh, you want free tickets for this show? Like the guy Ben Higgs we were talking about. You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this guy had fucking flown all the way over from Sydney, Australia. You know, yeah. and you're just like, "Yeah, we're gonna take care of you, man." Like I remember we ran into that kid in Russia one day when we were walking down Melrose. Oh, that's right. This fucking crazy Russian kid is like, "Oh my god, you're the guy from H two O," and you just stop and you talk to that kid for like a half an hour well the first time i saw that was obviously 
one of the first out of town bands I ever saw, and when I lived in Newport, Rhode Island, when I really got into the punk, was a verbal assault. I was, it was a verbal assault show. One of those shows. Well, my friends when the bands Vicious Circle and Verbal Assault was a local Newport band. But when this when the first out of town band came, it was Descendants, and I fucking love them. And I never forget watching the show. It was an incredible show. And then all of a sudden, Milo's at the merch booth, just hanging out after that. And I was and I looked at him on these records. It was the first time seeing him in real life. And I said, Oh, she's at the merch booth. I'm like. I can just go over there and say something. I went over and I said, great show, shook his hand. And I think from that, I was like, holy shit, this is such a special kind of music that's not what I've seen on TV, like with the barricades and the big metal bands. Not that they don't do that, but this it's like a community and this you can just go say hi to the guy. Like, this guy, this is Milo, you know what I mean? So that that really resonated with me too. And just obviously sick of it all and the bands are around with the same kind of way at the merch booth, selling their merch, hanging out with the kids. And yeah, I thought that was... That's the thing I liked about punk and hockey, that the bands weren't, you're all equal. There was nobody better or not. Just because you're on the stage doesn't mean you're, like you're better than somebody else. It's We're all part of this whole movement, you know? That's really connected with me. Yeah, you're really the embodiment of that. And you still live a very public life here in Los Angeles. You, I think you love it, too. Like, you got to run your canyon every day. Strangers come up and talk to you. They either they want to talk about your tattoos. They want to talk about your dog. But oftentimes, they're H2O fans. And you're just, you, you just are a super personal guy. It's not something you... It's not something you pretend to be. No, I'm um, out, I'm out here, man, and I do I do feel like sometimes that could be my weakness because I do wear my heart on my sleeve and I do, you know, I post personal things and feelings and stuff, and that's just people that know me. That's that's me. Whatever I'm put on social media, that's me. I'm not trying to be something. That's me. If I'm emo or write writing something, that's just I express myself, and I'm not, I don't really care. It's like I know I know that my friends will check me. I know that my wife will check me. I know that um, if I'm I don't know. I'm just I'm just myself, and I, every every letter I've ever gotten in my whole entire life, I responded to every single physical letter I have in the garage in a box. I wrote every person back because I used to send postcards to Ian McKay, and he would send me postcards back. I would send letters to different people and bands who write me back, and that's just that's just important, man. I don't know. Yeah, I know. I know now. Everyone who DMs you, you write back. To yes, you. and every I time could spend someone... hours on that shit responding to people. Yeah, and you do, and it's crazy, and people talk. About... People talk about that, like, oh, I'm always here for the people or whatever, but you literally do it. And there have been times I've been with you, like, dude, would you put your phone down? I'm right here in front of you. And you're like, I, well, I got to. I, you know, I, I sold 100 t shirts yesterday and I got to reply to everybody and let them know what's happening. And like that, I thank them for wanting to get the shirts and like, you know, just want to really connect with people. You don't take any of it for granted. That's, that, that, that's what punk rock and hardcore taught me. That, that's, what, that, that's what's so special about it. That's where it's from. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. I feel like I don't have any other type of music that has that kind of connection with the people who buy your music and your t-shirts and support you. Why would you want to support them back or like write them back or have a conversation or thank them? You know what I mean? Like, I'm very lucky to be doing this band for 26 years, man, living in my this house and living in California and taking my family on tour and doing what I love, man. It's like, I don't know. I learned that shit from you guys. I learned it from punk and hardcore bands. I learned it from that band, the Disco Biscuits, who I set myself on fire yeah. with. The guy who actually knocked into my arm is Mark Brownstein, the bass player. But he was the mascot of that band, and he was always the guy coming out from backstage after a show, talking to fans. Every successful band that's a grassroots DIY band that's risen up through the scene has had that. And I used to do that with my Bee Gees band wherever we would go as soon as the show was over, covered in glitter and sweat. But I'd go to the merch table, go to wherever, just talk to people, get their names, you know, accept their friend request on Facebook. Then the yeah. next time we're going to the town, you send them a message. But then I became friends with all these people, dude. I have friends all over the country and all over the world that I met through this band because 
a, it was a real interest. It wasn't like yeah. you, there's some bands that you see do that that come out to the merch booth, but it's just because they want to sell more merch. Yeah. And it's obvious with certain people. And I try to model myself after people like you to do that and be like, man, there's a certain ability to be like or a joy in the ability to be able to be on stage entertaining people. Yes. And it's a privilege, man. It's not a right. And we both know a lot of bands who've acted like they were big, too big for the bridges and then they've fallen off and then they're like, where are my fans? And it's like, well, they weren't your fans. They liked a couple of songs, but you build fans and community and connection. And that's what punk rock is about. That's what a lot of jam bands are. And that's what juggalos are about in a certain way. And like, yeah, that's the thing. I hate the word fan. I like to call them like H2Omies or, friends they become friends and some of these people like grew up on this my band have children that are into my band come to every one of our shows in certain parts of germany or south america or all around america and they're always there they grew up with us you see them getting old we're getting old together and that's fucking magical man it's fan is weird do you know where that word comes from i don't it's short for fanatic okay okay yeah, and that's right. that's actually a negative word if someone's a fanatic you're like hey man you calm down you know mm. what i mean but like fan friends, friends. supporters yeah i love they friends. support my band but they're friends H2O Mies, I call them. Yeah, it's H2O like, is good. Yeah, it's just like people that have been there and love you and support you. Like we've had, yeah, like, yeah, man. And people that waited that seven years from the Go record to Nothing Proved, which was our, I guess, our comeback record, and waited, and that shit was a whole second chapter of my fucking career was that record, man. And kids waited those seven years for us, and they didn't have to do that because music comes and goes, and people can be really fickle with it, you know? But like, I don't know, man. We fucking, we're very lucky. I'm excited to play a show this weekend. It's the longest I've been home longest i've been with my wife and our marriage together me being home this is the longest we've been together like over a year home it's never happened since we've been married and lucky she didn't kill me and that's true love and that's a true best friend that's a fucking partner and a ride or die and i'm very lucky to be married man you i don't even know if i had this band if being this band still wasn't for my wife you know i don't know i'm very fucking lucky yeah you guys are very lucky and i think that's one of the things that's probably kept you sane throughout all these years and yeah, and it's obviously grounded place, everything, dude. Everything a, a place where we diverge. I spent a lot of time not having anybody like that was my real ride or die. Yeah. You know, and 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 it was really hard to maintain any sort of sanity without that sort of tether. So I, th- yeah. I think that's super important. And obviously your son, too. But yeah, but Moon definitely checks you. She doesn't take your shit. She doesn't take my shit. And she's always. Try- yeah, she's fucking. She knows me so well, man. I'm just. Yeah, I just, I'm very lucky, man. 25 years. I've been in the band 26 years and married 25 years. It's fucking crazy, man. Yeah. And <laughs> you've only been married to one woman and you had your son in wedlock. Mm-hmm. You know? On purpose. I told a friend that I was coming out here, it, that I was going to come down here and go to Phoenix for the reason, you know, being the minister. Yeah. Or your, your renewal of your vows. And, <laughs> and he was like, uh, "How? wait, how old is Max? And I was like 18. And he's like, and they've been married 24 years. That's not very punk rock. Wow. You know? And and he was he was goofing around, um, but yeah, it's it's but it's hardcore. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly um, hardcore. Yeah, I mean, we met at a sick of it all show in 1992, Chicago. My man Ken Olden put it on. I posted the flyer not too long. Ago. I forgot what bands play, but thank you, Ken Olden from uh, Battery, put the show on, and we met. There was a sick of it all show, and fuck, man, that's where we met. It's crazy, man. Right, and then you got married. For some reason, you got married in Tombstone, Arizona. Wyatt Earp and all the country stuff. But I don't know why my mom, wife picked that, but yeah, in Tombstone. Now we're going to be renewing our vows in Mesa or something like that, somewhere where we're staying. Phoenix. This week. Phoenix, it's, it's, yeah. It's funny. People, like, I don't want to diss anyone in Phoenix, but there's Mesa, there's Tempe, there's Glendale, there's Scottsdale, but it's really all just Phoenix. Okay. You know, it's kind of like, it's like saying that, uh, 
Hollywood is a different city than Los Angeles. You know, mm. Phoenix is just one big metropolitan area that's made up of all these different towns. But but yeah, we're going to Phoenix, brother. Do you have any regrets in your life? You know, I've thought a lot about that, dude. And yeah, selling selling that first apartment I bought was a huge regret that I spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of energy regretting that. You did that for your mom. Yeah. Wow. Break, man. Because she told me she she had told me that when I when my dad died, I had already bought this apartment and she was like it's it was my dream my whole life to live in New York City and I didn't get to live my dream because of my kids. And I want to spend time in New York City. But me, me, I don't, me. I deserve, I deserve. I don't, yeah, I don't feel entitled. comfortable being in Harlem. So I think you should sell that apartment and buy, let, you should buy something downtown where I'd feel comfortable walking around. You know how much that apartment would be worth right now? A couple then, mil. Yeah, the one in Harlem. A couple God, mil. Man. My God, and I fucking renovated it myself. I fucking went to Home Depot. I bought all these books. I bought my first ever power tools to Just renovate that, that apartment. one situation alone would have crushed me. Yeah, doing that for my mom. But and I don't regret that now. And 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 I had another regret breaking up with the girl I broke up with. Her name was Mary. We were together from 2001 to 2006. I've regretted that for a long time. But then I, lo- I left all my regrets in Florida, in Ocala. I love that. I love you know? that. And I was just like, if I never broke up with Mary, I wouldn't have ended up in tragedy. My Bee Gees band, I wouldn't have made all these friends I have around the world. And like everything. I had lunch this morning with my friend Jono. Yeah, all right, breakfast over at Cafe Gratitude. And he said something I've heard a lot of times since I left Florida. Man, I'm so sorry you had to go through all that. And I, every time I hear that, I'm like, I'm not, man, because it's I'm here now and I'm yeah. happy. So everything, just like every turn you made led you here in your life, you know, yeah. going to that punk rock show, every turn led me here. And maybe I wouldn't even have, maybe I never would have been suicidal, but maybe I would have never been as happy as I am now because now I have the, I have the luxury of looking back and seeing everything I've overcome. Yeah. So when I wake up sometimes up there in Idaho in my little one person tree fort cabin and I'm like, today's going to be a shitty day. I just don't feel like doing anything. I can sit there and be like, but I don't want to kill myself. Yeah. And I can put it all in perspective and be like, you know, I'm lucky to have survived all this and to be where I am now. And I don't, I don't regret everything that got me to this point because now I'm I'm here, man. I'm I here. Know, I'm I with know, you. I'm I like, know. this is cool. So I may not be, I may not have any money anymore and I don't really want to book shows in New York City. I'll tell you that, but I will to make money for a little while, but I only want to work with my friends now. I think the business kind of drove me crazy. That's a yeah. whole other discussion. Yeah. So I don't know how I'm going to earn a living and I've thought about, I did construction two weeks ago. Yeah. I, I spent two and a half days rebuilding a deck with a guy I met up there in Idaho yeah. for not much money, but I'm like, I just I get to do things, you know, and yeah. I'm like, I have a I have an able body. I have an able enough mind. I, I can use a saw. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I might have to go work at the grocery store. I don't know if I'm going to put on a lot of shows this summer. I don't know that if I do put them on, I'm going to make money because in my business, there's no the promoter is the only one who's in guaranteed money. Yeah. The venue gets rented. The band gets guaranteed money. I'm the only one who can lose money in this situation. Our shows are good, though. October 9th and 10th in New York. Yeah, you're going to be great. LPR. October 9th is sold out. October 10th is selling good. well. LPRNYC.com. But what, 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 about, what about advice you give somebody who, who's having who's having some trauma and being abused? As you get t- like, Tell people what's happened. Get it off be, your chest. Beyond your parents. Yeah. Anybody can tell. Tell your friends. Try to find a therapist. Counselor. Go to a guidance counselor at your school. Don't hold it in. That's the only, that's the best advice is like, tell, 
you know, you can't tell everybody, but tell a couple people. Don't tell one person like I did with my mother about my sexual abuse. And if they say it, you can't stop, you can't stop there. She's yeah. You have to no, you got to tell people until you find a sympathetic ear and you will find one. And it's embarrassing and it's shameful. And you're made to feel like it's your fault when it's not your fault. And if if you haven't suffered trauma, if you just feel like you don't want to live for whatever reason, if you just have a depressive head, dude, I wanted to kill myself from when I was four years old. We didn't even get into that. My whole life is full pretty much as long as I can remember. I used to have these visions of how I was going to kill myself and I was going to do it in front of my parents. I remember that what? from when I was four years old. I was going to... F- I had this vision that one day they were going to pull their car into the house and nothing bad had happened to me at this point, at least not that I know about. But I used, I had this very specific vision that I was going to fill a wheelbarrow with cement and while the cement was drying, I was going to take all the steak knives in the kitchen and put them in the cement so they were pointy side up and when my parents pulled their car into the driveway after being out for a night, I was going to jump out the window and land like Superman flat down on these knives. So like... No fucking way, yeah, dude. I've been suicidal my whole life and I don't know where it came from and I still have not pieced that together. You didn't together. That in therapy? You told those stories in therapy about that vision? I did, yeah. Wow, and, man. You know, we just didn't get that far yet. I still have a lot of therapy to do. I'm not cured. That's something I learn a lot in therapy too and here's something else to tell you. If you've gone through this, you want a piece of advice? If you were suicidal for a little while and then you're not now and you think, well, I'm cured. Dude, I, the more I tell myself I'll never be cured, the more open I am to working on myself more. Yeah. And so you're you're never going to be cured, but if you think that you you're over it, still talk to somebody. Go to therapy, man, <laughs> like or if you have a good friend or a wife, someone to talk to. Get it off your chest. Don't hold don't hold it in and don't keep secrets. That's the best advice I can give. And if you think that you have a friend who's suffering and going through something, call them out on it. Ask them about it. But don't call them out. I don't mean like, in "Hey, I think you're depressed." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be like, "Hey, man, like you know, be vulnerable like you are in your lyrics and like you are on your own social media and you are on your podcast. Be vulnerable to your friends and tell them I'm having struggles and it's not easy. I'm telling you a lot of these things for the first time, even though you know, know everything man. I've been I through. Know, man. So it's not easy. But if I'm I'm not telling you how to live, but you said if 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 I could give someone advice, yeah. that's the advice I would give them is and just keep trying, man. And if you if you're in therapy and you think it sucks, get a new therapist. You know, the first therapist you find. Therapists are like boyfriends and girlfriends, right? And it's like, not, and also, that's not your fault. And you, you don't deserve it. No, or, right. And don't make you feel, don't make yourself feel like you did something wrong, or you you know you feel guilty. Yeah, is if, that right? If you no? did something incredibly wrong, no, I'm like, no, no, I'm saying no. When, when the abuse is happening to you, yeah, like it's not your fault, man. Yeah, you like, yeah, you weren't asking for it. You weren't. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that you know what I mean? Yeah, a lot of people carry that around, and they're told they're gaslit. Gaslighting is a term we hear a lot now, and that's when an abuser makes somebody else feel like it was their fault and that they're the crazy one. Okay. So, so consider that. If you feel like you've been gaslit, you probably have. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, we both know a lot of people in relationships. I'm not saying anyone specific. Everyone out there knows people in relationships who are like, there's. you've heard about abusive relationships yeah. where the woman says, well, I burned the steak, so the husband came home and hit me. Now, he didn't hit you because he burned the steak. And I mean, that's another thing. That's another sort of piece of advice is that like anytime someone's mean to you or to a waitress at a restaurant, whatever it is, when someone lashes out and is mean, that's their problem. That's not the person at the other end of the abuse. So even even if it's, you know, if it's if someone treats a waitress shitty, they're not treating the waitress shitty or the server at a restaurant shitty because they didn't fill their water cup the right way that's they have deep-seated issues of their own and i think that's one of the things i learned about my mother she didn't treat she didn't 
cause all these problems for me because she wanted to. Yeah. Like everyone's gone through shit, man. So like it's not they're not giving you shit because you're a bad person. They they're going through their own shit. And I'm not saying you need to forgive all of them, but you need to understand that you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't yeah. get yelled at. You didn't get hit by your parents. You didn't get screamed at in road rage traffic. Right. Some guys beeping his horn at you. Yeah. That everyone who acts out towards other people is doing it because of their own insecurity and deficiencies that they need to explore. So don't ever take anybody else's trauma and shit on as your own. Amazing, man. How do you feel right now? I feel good, man. I can't wait. I, I, I kind of want this podcast to end because I want to give you the longest hug I've given you. I like know. Maybe Any more questions life. for me? You covered things you want to say. I think I covered things. Where are we eating tonight? I want to hit Rusty up right now. I'm going to get some swingers or something. <laughs> cool. But this has been very, this has been like. This took a lot of turns that I did not expect. And for all the listeners who's been listening since day one, you know this is probably one of the heaviest conversations, honest conversations that the guests have ever really given on here. And I want to thank you for Jake for being comfortable with me. Uh, being my friend and being alive I appreciate you being and being alive and to be open up to me about this stuff because I didn't know a lot of this stuff man you know what I mean like yeah well it's I'll, insane it's I'll probably insane. tell you even more when when <laughs> when this when I finally understand everything I just told you here because there is more but the but the people listening and and uh, they all appreciate your story and this is it's courageous and it's uh it's really eye-opening and um it's heavy to digest but I'm digesting it now but I also knowing you've been through a lot of I know most of the stuff, but not some real deep stuff we went into today. So, yeah, the the people listening are going to hear your story and hope some people can relate to it. And maybe they'll reach out to you and they could DM you and talk to you as well. You know what I mean? Not that you're a doctor, but you've been through some shit. Then yeah, man. Some I, people can relate to it. That's something know? I say a lot on my own podcast, and I've told my friends, like, if, if you ever need someone to talk to, I'll at least listen. I might not have good advice, but I'll at least listen. And that's the first step is just getting it off your chest. I found that when I showed up in in Florida in Ocala, that first second day I was there where I did that walk of life. Once I yeah. just said it all out loud, I felt a huge weight off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you can accomplish some of that even just by journaling. Like, yeah, people keep things bottled up inside. I think that's what causes people to have heart attacks, right? It's stress. It's mm. like, you know, the 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 generation of our our fathers and their fathers were taught to be tough guys and hold your emotions. No emotion. In and that didn't work. Um, yeah. Be as emotional as possible. Be emo. Journal. Call your friends. Talk. Write to a stranger that you learned about on the internet from a podcast. and Yeah. You know. Can they contact you just through DMs? Jake, is it Jake Roxoff? Is that your Instagram? Yeah, Jake Roxoff. You find it through Toby's Instagram, obviously. Yeah. And uh, I do this on my own podcast. I give out my phone number. It's 917-443-7615. And if you You're amazing, man. If you want to write me a letter, it's P.O. Box 4116, McCall, Idaho, 83638. I love sending postcards, as you yeah, know. Yeah, you always send us postcards. And I love getting mail, and I love sending mail. And if you send me some mail, I'll send some mail back. And if you just want a pen pal, and you want someone with no judgment, and you want to send me a letter saying, hey, I'm going through something, or if you just want to send me a postcard and say, I, yeah. like, I like what you heard, you know? Everyone loves getting shit in the mail, because you don't totally. get it anymore, right? Like, emails are cool and whatnot, but yeah, yeah. Or fucking text me, you know? Just what you said about being manly, too, and different pressures. Like, I would love people, if they're if they're into what I'm into, um... Seven Seconds New Wind album really changed my life. And there's a song in there called Man Enough to Care. And it's about that. Like, uh, just listen to the lyrics and get back to me on this song. This song connected me so much as a young kid. I wasn't even had thoughts about being a parent. Obviously, I didn't have a dad. But the song's called Man Enough to Care. And nobody in punk rock was singing about this kind of macho upbringing where kids and their, their kids, their daughters or sons can show any emotion. They have to be tough. They have to be manly. And this song that Seven Seconds wrote 
nobody has ever to this day wrote a song like that in the hardcore community and that song really connected with me man it's one of my favorite songs ever written and please check it out if you are interested in what inspired me um yeah, man enough to care seven seconds off the new wind album it's incredible incredible i'd like to play a clip from maybe if i can allow to do that at the end of this but anyway jake how do you say your la- say your last name for the people <laughs> you have a thing about not being able to pronounce your guests last no, names on the podcast and the, i love even it, the dude. first names too yeah but how do you say your last name it's sufnarowski and what is that what does that come from it comes from poland my dad was polish um uh, so was his dad oddly enough mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Sufnarowski. Yeah, it's a, it's a been a really tough name to have my whole life, which is kind of why I changed it to Jake Roxoff. Yeah, I call you that too. Yeah, uh, that's fine. I say Jake Snuffleupagus. Yeah, that that works. Um, well, thanks for listening, Jake. Thank you for your time. This this started off as me being on his <laughs> podcast, but I'm fucking. This episode's coming out on mine and his. You hijacked my podcast. It's coming out both because we did a podcast a long time ago. It was just about your life, and it was none of this stuff. It was we did this a long time ago, and I have it still. Right when you were starting your podcast, yeah, and it, had no, none it was almost of, like a test episode. And, it, ne- we and no, it was just about like you and your job. But this is, this is, yeah. this is incredible, man. You came a long fucking way, man. This feels a lot better, man. A, a long way, and this is going to inspire a lot of people. And this is going to make, I don't know, I'm fucking, I'm overwhelmed by this. Cool. We're gonna hug now. Yeah. Hugs, not drugs. <laughs> Um, thanks for all listening. One Life, One Chance podcast and your podcast is... Tuesdays with Jakey and... Uh, but this is not coming out on a Tuesday or Friday. This might come out ASAP. We'll see. It has to come out at least after our anniversary surprise on Friday. Yes. And we're going to have pictures of that on your Instagram. Yeah, all that. Mine yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, hey, one last thing. What? Just keep living. I love you, man. And I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your friendship. You've been a positive force in my life. You're one of my favorite people and in, in my family's life, And my family's life too, man. Yeah. It's, it's always... It's, one of the things I loved the most when I kind of like when I bought that motorcycle and sort of just decided to stay out here. I yeah. never really moved out here. I just I came here and didn't leave. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that kept me here was you guys welcoming me into your family the way the way you had. But not just not just from 2018 when I bought the motorcycle. But before that, I felt like every time I've ever come here, I've almost never drank in front of you. Almost never. Yeah. Never had drugs in front of you. You definitely fought you and your party. family was always like. You know, Max calls me Uncle Jake. Yeah. You refer to it like he used to call me Uncle Weirdo when he was a lot younger. Yeah. But one of the things that's always made me feel wonderful is the way you guys have accepted me in your house and your home. Very few people sleep in your house. I know that. And you've True. always welcomed me and be like, you can stay on the couch, man. Like, and I know yeah. you don't love that with most people, but it's always been super special that. W- I can come over here in the middle of the afternoon, even if I'm just visiting L.A. or when I was living here. We just hang out like we don't have to do anything. It's not like let's go to lunch. I just come over here and sit in your house and we just shoot the shit. And you've never once made me feel uncomfortable. And you've pretty much never made me feel uncomfortable being as weird as I am. You point out some of my peculiarities, but you do it in a loving way. Yeah. And I've never felt the New York bar breaking. Yeah, of course. That I hear from other people. Yeah. No judgment. No judgment in this house. We love you people for who they are. And um, and I know I, I'm I, hard to love sometimes. And I've, I've also understood that, like, I understand why I've been lonely a lot, because I know I have in a lot of ways I'm manic. And even though I'm good, I'm more well adjusted now from all the therapy. I'm still like I'm still a hyper dude at heart. Yeah, and I like still. to talk and I like to like, I know it's not true people person. I know. Yeah. I just like to talk and I like to tell people about myself when I'm excited about something. I don't hold it in. And like I know that I have a t- I have an energy that's hard for a lot of people to handle. 
even when I'm not fucked up or crazy or weird. I'm just and a wild I'm, personality and, and awkward jokes and shit like that. Yeah, and I make myself you. One of the things I love is that like I always I make myself laugh. Like I'll say something and I'll be laughing over in the corner and it will n- completely not be funny, but it's funny to me. And then you yeah. just laugh and you're like, <laughs> I love the way you make yourself laugh with the stupidest jokes. And you don't say you're weird or crazy nah. for it. You just you've always accepted but me for being me, and I love that. It's great to see you. It's great to see you in a good place. <laughs> Mind, body, and soul. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, 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 you're here. You're, you're here. You're not just here. You're physically here, mentally. You know what I mean? Like you, you know, you're in tune with yourself. Yeah, man. It feels awesome to be present and not be trying to run away from anything. And, and like that's why living up there in Idaho now, I'm just like, I don't need anything, man. Like I just go fucking. Sometimes I just go sit on a rock in the woods and just look out. And I'm like. You know, I, I'm on my phone too much in general, but I think that connects me with the world. And that's that's kind of the last thing I'm working on is like I canceled my Twitter recently. Maybe I'll reactivate it. But it's like I'm just trying to find things that only bring me joy. Yeah. And that's why I canceled Twitter. And like nature brings me joy in a way that I never would have fucking I never would have imagined, man. If like two years ago you had said list all 50 states in order of the likelihood of them being the next one you'd live in. I don't know that I I might have gotten to 47 and been forgotten Idaho existed. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if you had said one day you're going to live in a cabin in the woods on the side of a mountain with basically nobody around, I'd be like, you're literally crazy. Yeah. But now, yeah, I don't I couldn't imagine moving back to New York City to live. Yeah. Like I just I like calm energy, man. And I'm glad you're doing better, too. I mean, I know we're going to end this soon, but it's but you had some like uh, prolonged uh problems from the covid that you're dealing with now so people listening who had or not have it with your lungs affect it last what's it called like after effects of it they call it long long term covid symptoms yeah i had covid in march then in october i had pneumonia then i got another lung infection in march that i'm still battling with a little but i'm trying to take as little drugs as possible and but after this whole story i know that you've been through so much that you made it through the covid you made it through all this of your fucking you're here, man. I'm going to be here. fine, man. I'm going to be You're fine. You're a survivor. You've been through everything, man. And honestly, like, I don't I don't want to die, but if I were to die tomorrow, I I kind of wouldn't have any regrets. I, mm. I wish I, I want to live more. My only regret would be that I haven't, wasn't able to make more friends and have more fun experiences. Yeah. But like, yeah, I'm like, I've lived a fucking great life, man. And all the bad things that happen, I can still look at it as a whole and be like, I'm a lucky motherfucker to have met all the people, traveled all the places, even if a lot of it was through darkness or to run away from darkness or like I'm actually working on writing a book and it's going to I haven't really talked about this publicly. I've, I've deep into it. And the title is going to be I'm almost always having more fun than you. That's and great. that's because. Everybody always would say, oh, you're always out having fun. And the almost is the important part. Like I might have looked like I was having fun Word. my whole life. But a lot of that was through darkness, but I still wouldn't trade it for anything. That's why you asked about regrets. Like, I wouldn't be like, man, I sh- if I had done that, my life would be better. It would be different, and it may- might not have been less bad at some times, but it certainly wouldn't be this good. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm, w- I'm where I am because of everything that I had to go through, and I'm happy about where I am now. And I don't know that I would be this happy without having experienced everything I had yeah. and have that perspective. So I'm happy here. I love you. We could do a part two someday, but people... I love you too, Toby Raymond Morris. Thanks for everybody listening, man. This has been an incredible conversation. One of my favorites, man, because it's with a close friend of mine and, and he opened up to me about so much fucking personal shit and I'm proud of you. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. I love you. Bye, everybody. 
Hey, hey guys, I'm back. Hey guys, I'm back. Uh, we're back actually. Um, Jake's been staying with me all week, and now to have some little time to kind of sleep, shitty sleep, and digest um, our insane conversation yesterday. Some of the things that you know, I think I was still kind of shell shocked by your situation that you start asking me questions after that, and I don't know if I gave proper answers, but um, the one thing that really stuck with me this past, I don't know, twelve hours since we had this conversation was um, welcome back, Jake. Hi, Jake. Was that Hi, Toby. how many other people that I've been friends with as long as you have been through the same kind of trauma but haven't came out about it? Like how many people that I know personally that's been through this, I may never know. And maybe if they're listening to this or they hear this episode, it might inspire them to talk to somebody about it. But knowing you this whole time and not ever knowing any of that stuff, I'm thinking, damn, I must know more people that's happened to. You know what I mean? Like it's such a heavy burden to Took carry. Me over 40 years to be able to say it out loud. Yeah, and it's such like a heavy burden to carry in your mind body and soul and i think that affects not just your mind but your everything you know what i mean like how you treat yourself how you what you eat how uh kind of stuff you put in your body because obviously you don't give a fuck about living or dying so it affects everything health uh, mentally and physically um and then uh, another thing you mentioned to me we were hanging out through the day was um something that i posted that resonated with you and his means as well was um, don't worry about what I'm doing. Worry about why you worry about what I'm doing. And that post to me was that I feel like time is so precious on this planet. You can never get time back. And I think people spend a lot of time worrying about other people and what they are doing and what how they're living or what who they're hanging out with or what what they believe in or how they live their lives and not worry about their own lives. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and that takes away from their lives when they worry about other people's lives and it's like that's why i said yes i I like to stay in my lane i like to focus and 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 surround myself with people that inspire me people that are positive people that lift me up friends that look out for each other and like no but no pun intended look out for each other like family and surround yourself with it it's not it's not it's not quantity or friends it's quality and i feel like that has helped me throughout my life when you ask me um growing up how i grew up and then staying positive and also um, if you do what you love, you actually never work a day in your life, and that's something that always stuck with me too. If you, if you build a life for yourself and 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 do something you really want to do and stick with it and not give up on it and do it, you create this life for yourself that, um, that, that that's something you wanted to do, and you and you get to live that. And I'm very lucky. I get to. I said that yes, I get to very lucky. I get to do what I love, and be around people that I love, and I'm kind of my own boss. And I built that for myself, and I'm proud of myself for that. And that's probably also a way of staying positive is being happy and loving what I do. Doing this podcast, this is something that has been very therapeutic and very awesome in a different chapter of my life. Um, and I love having these conversations because I learned about people, you know? Sure. Um, I feel like the only days in your life you've ever worked are days when you're flying to another continent. Because I know you that's the only part of your job, so to speak, if you even call what you do a job that you don't like. And I know you hate traveling, hate especially traveling, when you have to fly intercontinentally, right? To Europe, to Asia, to South America. You're like, oh, I'm not looking forward to that flight. But when you get there, I love it. Then you stop working. Then you're just being. And what part of your being that's inside of you and in your soul is being on stage and yeah. being a musician and a performer. Yeah. And it was something else I thought about that quote yesterday about don't worry about what I'm doing. Worry about why I worry about what you're doing. What but, I'm doing. What I'm doing. But But that. It, for, for our relationship in particular, that can be a total opposite because me and Karina and all your friends were worried about what you're doing, why you were doing it, why you were in Vegas. 
and you weren't responding to it, so you're taking your phone and put it in a fucking safe. So yeah, that that could work opposite. Yeah, I should be worried about you for those type of reasons, obviously, because my friend's going to kill himself and he's in fucking Vegas in the hotel. Yeah, we're fucking worried. Why the fuck are you doing that? Because none of us had known what you had been through until I found out yesterday. So all these demons and shit you had, we didn't know why Jake wanted to kill himself. He's a happy-go-lucky guy. So it's like, why the fuck he want to do that? So now that I know that, at all everything about you in this past twenty four hours makes total fucking sense. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's crazy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And yeah, now, you know, now I'm happy to have my friends worried about me. Yeah. But, but you know, the way you posted that, um, and I'm happy to worry about my friends, too. And it's not worry, though. It's checking in on my friends and wanting to know what they're up to, how they're feeling, why they're feeling the way they're feeling. I mean, we talk about that all the time on the phone when we just call each other and talk. and We, we talk about what's going on in life. And, and obviously, every now and then, you and I will talk about mutual friends and like, what are they doing? You know, like we'll see someone posting something. We'll be like, oh, what's that guy doing? Um, but I usually reach out to people if I see some shit like that. I'm like, hey, you all good? I always check in with people. You can look at my phone. I check in with people er- st- almost too much. I'm like, you good? Hope you have a good. I always check in on my friends. I've always been like that, always checking in. Especially if you see some online, you're like, yo, you good? Because people have done that to me too. If I wrote, wrote, posted something, you good? Like, yeah, I'm going through a little shit. And some of my friends reach out to me because of that. But that that post in particular, I don't know why it's crazy to talk about a post. Is like that's more also also about people that don't even know me or strangers or people don't know, never met me before, only see what they see, and they're like, right. you know, that's what I'm saying that is like haters, about, and, yeah, shit like that, like another, strangers, yeah. We can. There's a straight line we can draw between one of the things we talked about last night, and I was talking about people who abuse you, you know, and trying to figure out that trying to understand that they're abusing you and being mean to you because. They're insecurities in their own life. And that's the same thing online with with haters, trolls and cancel culture, which we which is going on right now. And like, obviously, some people need to be canceled because they've done completely horrific things. But other things like people going 10 years back in somebody's Twitter and being like, oh, you made a racist joke in 2007. And it's like it's easy to take those things out of context. Not saying that racist jokes are okay, but like, why are people going back 10, 12 years into a comedian's Twitter? It's one thing if you're a politician, right? And you'd be like, hey man, you've changed your stances because that's an important job. But when it comes with comedians and musicians, like anyone who's out there trying to actively cancel people and playing like that gotcha game is like, they've got real issues and Mm -hmm. problems. Like, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing something with your own life? Yeah. Um, and a lot of people are just unhappy and insecure and maybe they've suffered abuse. Like, I don't know what what these people what drives someone to want to like hate other people on the Internet. But it's obviously it comes from their own insecurity. So it's unfortunate that they don't have friends that will reach out to them when they see posts like that and someone doing things like that. Like back then, you mean? No, now, like oh, if, yeah. if, if I knew a guy who was digging up 15 year old tweets of somebody else and then posting them and being like, look at this jerk, I'd call that guy and be like, Dude, why are you scrolling back 15 years on someone's Twitter timeline? What are you missing from your own life? You know, like, yeah. like pe- people need to focus on their own shit. And and but we do need to focus on our friends, too. Yeah. So if you see, I, if you I, per- see I personally me, don't think a racist joke is unforgivable. That's just me personally. Yeah. Well, I, I get it. But I'm, I'm talking about just things in general. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But no, Kevin Hart had something where he said something. Yeah. And then he would not apologize and all that stuff. I remember Kevin Hart's was homophobic. Yeah. Um. But, you know, I'm not saying I'm not defending Kevin Hart or anybody who makes those jokes, but there's context and there's different lines that lines move. Right. And what's yeah. acceptable in culture and society. So something that might have been acceptable in the 90s or the early 2000s, like has, that's changed. So you, you can't judge someone on today's standards. You can't use today's standards to judge them what happened 20 years ago. 
But but further than that, I I recently I deleted my Twitter. I might re- redo it because you have 30 days. I'm not sure, but I just needed to clear it out of my life for a little bit. But what I did like a few months ago, I went back and I just deleted my entire Twitter history. I didn't delete my account, but I deleted every tweet I had ever made because I was able to, I did some scrolling back in my own and I could pinpoint the times when I was saying harsh things on Twitter, not just about other people, but the world in general were the yeah. times that I was most unhappy in life. Your darkest moments. My darkest moments. And, and it's funny to look back and be like, oh, I wasn't happy. That's why I was posting things like that. Mm-hmm. And like, I only want to post things and put things into the world that are happy thoughts, you know, that might spark joy in other people. So I like posting pictures, like posted a picture of me and you and Stella at Runyon yesterday in yeah. the sun and smiling. And it's like, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to close off the dark part of my life, but I don't need to share that with everybody. I share yeah. that with my friends. Yeah. You know, I call my friends sometimes and say, man, I'm not, I'm not having a good day. I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of stuff should be private, but you shouldn't close it off. You shouldn't pretend it doesn't exist. That doesn't do any good. That's what I did for 40 years, and it drove me literally to insanity. Yeah. Another thing you mentioned about me yesterday, like maybe getting tattoos to want to like fit in with like the tougher guys I was hanging out in New York. But uh, for me, maybe it was sort of like you said, like a shield repellent so nobody would mess with me. Or But it, for me, I was more attracted and intrigued by the tattoos of how they looked once I got one. Just the smell of the ink, getting it, even the pain, and I hate needles. And then the addiction came with that. But something that you said was um, interesting because um, you stabbed somebody, and and I would I could never stab anybody. And so, are you a tough guy? No, no. I I, I know what you did because you got kicked in the balls. I'm just saying, like, it's just saying, like, you you were saying maybe I want to be a tough guy because I have these tattoos, but. I've never really, I never hurt anybody before. You stab somebody and you really have any tattoos. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you were trying to make the analysis of like tattoos make it, maybe I try to be tough like that. Right, right. But yeah, but it wasn't, for me, it was just the way, you know, but it, it actually backfired on me because when I fully sleeved back then, having a lot of tattoos like I had, it wasn't really acceptable still in the early 90s. So I could be on trains and people would be staring at me or I try to give old lady a seat on the subway and she'd be like, no, thank you. Or people holding their kids like people thought I was like some fucking degenerate criminal when I never been arrested and I never did any drugs. But I had this look of me, you know, what I'm saying like so totally. kind of like maybe if it was shielding, shielding off, I, I don't know, but it kind of. Didn't work in that way because if people started judging you for tattoos, like, oh, this guy's a fucking creep. But now, fast forward now, I mean, it's everybody has tattoos. Grandmothers, my, your mom. Do you know what I mean? Like, everybody has a tattoo. Back then, it was kind of, it was also like the shock shock value of it, too. Is like, I'm a hardcore kid. I'm a punk rocker. This is me. I'm tatted up. Like, I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to fit into society. This is the way I'm not going to ever have to get a real job. I'm going to be this. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so that was kind of like the mentality back then. I think for also a lot of people getting tats, like, I'm a rebel to society. I get tattoos. You know what I mean? Like you have the tats. Sure. You kind of stood out as like a fucking weirdo, but it's weird how that's changed now that it's just completely normal and accepted. Even people have tattoos on their head and their neck. Yeah. You wore how you, if you felt like a weirdo, you want to even express even more. Let's put it on my fucking skin. Show me out. You know what I mean? It's where you, you know, you feel like a misfit in this fucking show. Everybody on my skin forever that I don't give a fuck <laughs> the rest of my life. I'm not going to have the real job. I'm going to be fucking, but now it's just like, yeah, everybody's yeah. tatted. My fucking, FedEx guy has a neck tattoo. Dude's the dude at uh, Trader Joe's has his eyelids. He has sleeves. I was like, it's it's a different it's a different world now. Talk about wanting to wear your 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 attitude on your skin. I mean, look at my tattoos. My, my tattoos are almost completely ridiculous. Uh, yeah, you got some crazy ones. Dude. Yeah, you, got, you yeah. got my initials too. 
I got your initials. I got Toby Raymond Morris on there. I have a One Life, One Chance tattoo. Um, back piece. We I talked about that FTTW. already. FTTW. I have a unicorn humping a dolphin in front of a rainbow. I have a cupcake minister with a smoking AR-15 that just murdered his whole congregation. I have a, oh my God. some bizarre shit that I came up with. That they were my ideas. But, Toby, I got my first tattoo when I was 15 in New Hampshire. Wow. And tattooing was illegal in Massachusetts then. I went and got my first one when I was 15. I got my second one when I was 27. But then I didn't really, really start getting tattooed till I was like 35. And maybe 33. And there was a reason behind that because I was like, I knew at that point, like even in my teens, I was like, man, I'm going to regret some of these. But then by the time I was in my 30s, I'm like, I'd already started Rocks Off. I had like really created my own life for myself. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, now I can literally get anything I want. And... It's not going to be any more ridiculous when I'm 53 than it is when I'm 33. Whereas the tattoos that I have that I, I'm not really stoked on, it's just my first few. And the rest, yeah. I'm like, some of them are bad, some are good, some are a lot are goofy. But but I knew once I started getting them that I was like, I know this is stupid when I'm putting it on me. You have, so, no, you have no serious ones? Uh, yeah, I have like one that was a tribute to my dad and one that was a tribute to another father figure, Larry Block, the guy who started Wetlands where I first started you working. You have a Dick Dale tattoo? Those are my ribs. I have Dick Dale's signature. Okay, that's great. Tattooed yeah. on me. And uh, I turned the eye above, the the heart, the dot above the eye into a heart Okay. Uh, in Dick. Um, but I want to bring something else about, up about stabbing because this is something I thought about late last night and I haven't told anyone about. And you said to me, have you ever stabbed anybody since then? And I was like, No. But I have. I've stabbed myself a lot of times. And a few years ago, I bought a knife and I would just sit at my house late at night and just stab myself in the arm and in the chest. Wow. And I have I have a bunch of scars from that. Um, and I remember sending a picture to someone once and he was like, dude, and our friendship ended. We weren't even close friends. Really? But the only reason I sent it to him is because I really wanted this pink butterfly knife and I needed to get it sent to New Jersey. So I sent it to a friend who lived close by in New Jersey and who was in the city a lot because butterfly knives were illegal at that point in New York, New York State. So yeah. I couldn't get it shipped there. And then, uh, you know, he, he would like send me videos of how to open and close a butterfly knife. This is like 2018, not long ago. Wow. And um, he would send me videos. And then I sent him a video back one day of me stabbing myself. And dude just went like was like, dude, I think you have a problem. You shouldn't do that. And I think we might have spoken like once or twice since. And he just like left my life. Which wow. probably smart on his part. He was like, I don't want to. What the fuck is wrong with this guy? I don't want anything to do with him. Um, wow. And I know when I was in treatment, I met a lot of people who were they call them cutters. They call themselves cutters who cut yeah. themselves because it's a it's something people do as a way to try to feel something. Mm -hmm. But I used to slice myself with razor blades when I was a kid, too. I have this. See this scar in my arm here? Yeah. That's from a really deep cut. I gave myself with a razor blade. I have all sorts of scars on my stomach. I used to just sit in my bedroom, in my parents house. And cut myself. This is when I was like 13, 14 years old. I, I, I said to myself, we're not going to cry today. We're not going to get into the... We, yesterday was so fucking heavy. Like, I had a really hard time processing everything last night. Like, As soon as we finished this podcast, we went to dinner and you're like, how do you feel? And I was like, I just feel depleted and drained. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't... I didn't regret anything I said last night. More, you know, I wouldn't say I regret, but I was like, I can't believe I said all that stuff. But you said to me, like, if you really want to take something out and edit it or listen back. And I was yeah. like, no, no, no. If shit comes out, it comes out. You know, like, I, I don't I don't have regrets and I don't have shame. I understand that things I did were were not great things to do. And they came from being in a bad place. But I'm not ashamed of any of it. And that's something we touched on last night, too. That's like everything I did lead me to led me to this point. Yes. And I'm happy in life now. And I've learned a lot and I have a lot of perspective and I've 
it's it's the summation of all the things I've done in my life, good and bad, that got me to this point. So I can't be ashamed. Of yeah, it. I really feel like this conversation is going to help a lot of people, man. A lot I hope of so. people, and maybe people we know that never said anything, or other people, listeners, and or people that have been through similar traumas and stuff. I really hope that just your honesty and your um, it would just be, realness about it. Just it'd really, be nice if it helped other people, but a big part of me doesn't care because it because it's helped me and it's helped you and it's helped our relationship and friendship. And I think that's going to pay dividends just between the two of us. And you're no, one of I my know. best friends in the whole world. No, so. If it helps other people, fuck yeah, you know. And I gave my phone number out yesterday, and yeah. if people want to call me or text me, like I just gotta say I won't pick up a call from a number I don't know, but I'll read a text and I'll reply to it. Uh, yeah. And then if we become buds, then obviously, yeah, phone yeah. call is a thing. But if if you're just trying to call me and I don't pick up, you know, there's a reason I don't pick up uh, unknown numbers. But <laughs> scam likely. But yeah, if <laughs> if I, <laughs> if I can't, if what we talked about did help people, yeah. and if I can talk to people, like I'm more than happy to. Yeah. Um, but. Most important to me is just if there's a conversation with you that's going to happen to go out there. Yeah, but, but I'm now, happy but that now, I was yeah, able to tell you all these. Yeah, things. now I understand you. I know, and now I understand everything about you. Now it all makes sense. Like, unfortunate, unfortunate sense because the shit you've been through is fucking traumatic. But now everything about your personality, just everything about you, like it, the whole picture, everything, all the dots are connected now. You know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. And uh, yeah, I just remember texting you while you're at the rehab and not. We were talking every once in a while there. We sent you, I sent you some clothes and um, some money and all, just all that, just everything you went through then. And um, yeah, I'm just fucking so happy, man. I just got to say, Music Cares is incredible. One more time, I have to say that. Music Cares is totally incredible. Dude, and far, th- there's man. another charity that, that started recently that I, um, through my company, Rocks Off, my concert company, we make a lot of t-shirts. We recently reprinted the Coney Island High t-shirt with the logo with permission of the owners That's of Coney awesome. Island High. And, and I donated all the money from that to a new company called Backline. Um, I love Music Cares, but they have a lot of money. Yeah. They have big corporate donors, and they help everybody. Music Cares, it was started, I think, with, uh, I think it was Lucinda Williams back in the day had, uh, um, I don't know if it was her, but it was somebody, somebody back in the 90s had medical issues that she couldn't pay for, some sort of yeah. cancer, and that's how Music Cares started. But Backline got started just when the pandemic started specifically to help with mental health awareness. Uh, not awareness, but to provide mental health services to people in the music business, okay. but just mental health. And, and I think obviously- It's a great name, Backline. I love it. Yeah, it started, it started at a perfect time because I, I think I was talking to a friend recently about the pandemic and like I'll, the pandemic helped a lot of people, me especially. I wasn't ready to go back out in the world. It was good timing for me. So I- like when everything shut down, I was kind of like, okay, I can just stay home and meditate and not be forced to go out and answer, especially answer questions living in New York and being around and people like, where have you been? What happened? How long, how long, what was the time frame between getting out of rehab and the pandemic starting and lockdown? I got out December 22nd. Yeah. And then the lockdown started March 11th. Okay. Yeah. So for a couple, a couple of months, months, I was just like, oh, I was kind of white knuckling. I was like, how do I get through? How do I like restart my life? And and I started doing, I started putting time limits on things. Like I started walking to our office, which was on 29th Street and 6th Avenue. And I would walk there. And for the first week, I went there three times. First week after New Year's. And yeah. I was like, I'm going to answer emails and try to do work for one hour. And I would actually set a timer on my computer. And when the hour came up, even if I was in the middle of an email, I would just shut my laptop and be like, I'm going to work one hour a day. And I'm not going to let work invade my space because that's part of what drove me crazy. And I was like, I need to take care of myself. And then I upped it the next week to two hours a day, then three hours a day. Uh, but it, it, the pandemic helped a lot of people yeah. who suffered from anxiety issues and and didn't 
you know, didn't know how to deal with the outside world. So it let people shut themselves down. And then, but obviously it stressed out a lot of other people who got their joy yeah, and, and found joy in life from being able to connect with their friends and it's fucked them up. Um, so it's, I think a lot of people are, are dealing with things they've never had to deal with before through the pandemic. And I think hopefully backline can help those people. That's awesome. So backlines is a website you can go to. Yeah, yeah, I think I don't I don't know the website offhand, but uh, if you, you type you look it up, yeah, backline, backline yeah. mental health music biz, you can find it there. And uh, yeah, you can make a donation straight to them. Obviously, you buy a T-shirt, but like it'd be better off if you just made a donation straight to them because yeah. then money doesn't have to go to actually print a shirt. But if you want the shirt, you can buy one of those too. But but uh, I think the, just the more and more people who can talk about mental health, like we're doing right now, and yeah. just and if so, someone needs to talk to me. I'm sure if someone needs to talk to you. Or you is meditating just now too. Is that something you do every day? Meditating? Yeah. yeah, I meditate twice a day. I got um a friend of mine, uh there's this thing called transcendental meditation that, that David Lynch is a big proponent My of. My wife does but, it. Moon does it. Okay. And and they they do private one on one classes to learn this type of meditation, which is a little odd because it's like super easy to do, but they teach you for like you do one on one training for five days. And uh I went out to breakfast with a friend of mine who's papered up, as you'd like to say, yeah. a rich dude. And he was like, you ever tried transcendental meditation? And I was like, I, I, I would like to, but I don't, I don't have any money. Yeah. And dude, 20 minutes after our breakfast, I got an email from the David Lynch Foundation that was like, hey, your friend so-and-so wow. would like to gift you this, this me- awesome. these meditation classes. And I went for five days for the training, and I've done it every day, almost every day since, twice a day, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. It's helped you. Incredibly, incredibly. And there's no trick to it. Um, me- meditation is like there's so many apps out there and people teaching you how to meditate. You just have to sit and try to not think about anything. It's I love not, to try. I mean, I need to do that. Just shut everything yeah. off in your mind. Yeah. That's right? the thing, man. And like, we don't do that. And you just close your eyes and sit and just breathe. And like there's different there's different angles of different type of meditation. Transcendental is one. There's all sorts of other kinds. But like meditation is like it's the easiest thing in the world to yeah. do. And people build it up like, how am I going to do that? But it's yeah. like if you're interested in starting meditating, try it for three minutes. Just sit, close your eyes, set a timer on your phone. Just close your eyes and and just try to let things leave your mind. That's that, that's the thing. Like you don't have to like you don't. the harder you tr- try to meditate, the harder it gets. Okay. So you just sit and just be like. And then if your brain starts getting overactive, the way it got described to me in my first day of training is pretty interesting. It was like, you know, the ocean, there's always waves in the yeah. ocean, no matter how choppy it is. But the further you go deeper into the ocean, the less the choppiness happens. True. So you're just trying to, your mind is constantly on the surface of the ocean and waves are breaking and wind is making white caps. But if you go down 10 feet, it's not that swirly. If you go down 20 feet, it's very calm and still, and that's why people like scuba diving. You get down 100 mm. feet, and you're in another universe. So you just got to try to like put those weights that's on your brain and let it sink down below the surface. And sometimes you'll pop back up, and your mind will freak out, and then you just go, okay. And then you just try to lower again. And the more you do it, the better you get at it, and the easier it gets. And okay. yeah, now I do 20 minutes twice a day, and it's, it's helped me immeasurably. And I've noticed, like, last week I missed two days in a row. I just had some other things going on, and I usually do it the minute I wake up. I wake up, stretch, take a piss, drink yeah. a little water, and meditate. And when I miss two days in a row on that third day or the, the late in the second day, I, di- I did something kind of fucked up to a friend. Uh, and I, I like really hurt his feelings. And I w- wasn't intentionally. And then when I went and thought back, I was like, 
I haven't meditated in two days. And my mind was just <clears throat> pushing me in directions I didn't yeah. appreciate pushing me in. And, and that's one of the times I realized like, oh, it's helped me more than I know. You know, yeah. like it's like kind of like exercise and running. People say, you know, if you're into exercise and you miss a couple of days, you feel out of sorts. That's exactly it, me. So 100%. It's, it's exercise. It's exercising your brain. hundred percent. You do yoga, too? I try. I don't I'm do it nearly as much. Yeah, I need to do. It. I, I I did it once or twice. It's never really my thing, but yeah, I, I'm str- I can stretch well and do all that kind of stuff, and I'm very flexible. And I did it a lot when I was doing all that running in 2016. Yeah, you do a lot of running. You used to do marathons, all that stuff. I've done a few marathons, one ultra marathon, as we talked about the yeah, other day. Yeah. And then in 2016, um, I had run two marathons in a span of like three weeks. I ran the New York City Marathon, and then I uh, then I was flying to Thailand. And then I was in such good shape for the New York City Marathon that I didn't want to lose that shape. Yeah. And so I, I already had a flight to Thailand. And I was like, I'm going to Google to see if there's a marathon in Thailand. And I was going to the city of Chiang Mai to rent a motorcycle for three weeks and just take off in northern Thailand. And when I Googled Thailand marathons, there was a marathon in Chiang Mai three days after I landed. Wow. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do the Chiang Mai Marathon. And then that was just like December... 20th or something 2015 and then i read about this thing called three for 30 where or three for 31 because there's 31 days in january you know people do sober january yeah, people yeah. try to have yeah. new year's resolutions so this thing was try to run three miles every single day in january so i was like all right that's gonna be really hard because i'm motorcycling around thailand and I remember one day i got t- chased by two stray dogs for like two miles wow yeah i was like <laughs> I, had to, I had to sprint to get away from them they were like trying to bite me oh and, shit. Uh, but like 13 days into that, my best friend, this guy, Rodney Speed, who you know about, I have a tattoo of him. He was, uh, he was, uh, yeah, he was my best friend uh, for a long time. I'd met him at Wetlands and he, he passed away suddenly of a heart attack. And then I just decided I'm going to run three miles every single day in 2016 and call it running for Rodney. And I did. And I posted all these. The whole year, right? The whole year. And it was 366 days because it was a leap year. Holy shit. And I remember I added everything up. And in that year, I also did two triathlons. So I was running even further and swimming and biking. Um, But I started releasing all these videos. They're on my YouTube page. And I call them Running for Rodney. And I did it in like three different continents. I did it at sea level. I did it. I did a whole week running at 8,000 feet elevation. Yeah. And I made all these videos and I ended up raising over $50,000 to sort of scholarship fund in Rodney's name at Berkeley college of music in Boston. Incredible man. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. That was pretty rad. Wow. But uh, I was doing a lot of yoga during that for recovery. And then when that ended January 1st, 2017, I was like, I don't know that I ever want to run again. Cause it's just too much. So be, everyone I had, a, I had yeah. the flu during that year, but I went out and ran. I almost shit my pants one day when I was running. Damn. I like had a little short because I was just, yeah. I was in really bad shape. But I was like, I will not take a day off. I, I said I was going to. The thing is, no one would have known if I took a day off. Cause I, or no shot was, your pants. Yeah. I mean, I probably would have posted <laughs> pictures of that <laughs> if I had short them, shat them. But but you 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 committed yourself to that. Yeah, conviction for that to do it. Yeah, not. Yeah, and I, I think, awesome. you know, when I look back, like. I've always had that uh, sort of that ability. Like if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. Yeah. And if I tell my friends I'm going to do something for them, I do it. Um, That's true. And and that kind of stuff I think really helped in my mental health recovery because I was like, you know, I'm going to fucking fix myself. I don't care what it is. And like the lung issues we talked about yesterday, yeah. the doctor said to me, "You need to be on the steroid inhaler for six months." And I was like, "Yeah." Or I could like really change my diet and commit to exercising as much as possible. And he just kind of looked at me. And I think that added, the way he looked at me was like, 
Everybody says they'll do that, but nobody does. So, like, you're just going to need to stay on the inhaler. He didn't say those words, but I could tell that was his attitude. Wow. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to I'm going to fix my body. I'm not going to just I'm not the type of guy who, like, lets things happen to him. Yeah. You know, even though I did, obviously, with abuse and stuff like that. But but in my adult life, I'm like, if there's something I want, I, I go out and get it. Yeah. You've always been like that. You can focus on shit and actually make it happen. All right, well, fuck, man. This is almost three hours now. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but you've always been very, you've always been positive, though. You've always, you always had the PMA. You've always been very optimistic through all of it, it seems. Unless you were faking it with all your smiling and happy-go-lucky Jake. No, the thing, the thing is, dude, positive. I was never faking it. Well, but when I wasn't feeling positive, I just hid from everybody. Okay. So I only let people see me when I was able to be positive. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. You know, yeah. you have to be like, I'm not feeling good, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna push through, rally, and yeah. push through the positivity. Totally. But it was almost like, almost like split personalities, where I could be super happy one day, and there were times I'm sure I can't recall, but like maybe that you and I hung out, and then I left to go somewhere else, and just fucking collapsed and started crying. Wow. And it. Oh, I had a cheeseburger. I'm sick of having this <laughs> fucking vegan shit with Toby. I'm going to go yeah, in and out. But it burger. was like the, the, with the mental illness stuff, it, it was sometimes like a switch was flipped. Where yeah, I, yeah, yeah. When I was positive, I was positive. I wasn't just pretending to be positive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even when I was like, like I told you about when I was riding my motorcycle and I was knew that I was going to kill myself, when I was on the bike all day looking at nature and the mountains yeah. and the sunsets, I didn't want to kill myself at all. But when I got off the bike, something flipped in my yeah. brain and I was just like, can't wait to fucking kill myself. Maybe I can do it today. Wow. Yeah. So a- a- any day with you could have been your last day. Could have been. I don't think now, but I still. Dude, I'm I saying st- back then though. Any back day then, could- yeah, absolutely. I was like, actually I'm wake up say if I die, who gives a fuck? I was spending a lot of time on the motorcycle looking for the curviest roads I could find, and I kept going over to the edge of the road and looking over, and I was trying to find a place. For months, I was trying to find a place where I could ride my motorcycle off the edge of a cliff so that when I died, my friends wouldn't know that I killed myself, that it would look like an accident. Ah. Well, yeah. you're here and you want to live, so. Still here, still here. I'm just saying, though, like. Fucking years. Fuck, man. We're going to end this on the positive note. Yesterday, we ended on a very, very heavy note, but I'm so psyched to drop this fucking episode, man. Um, yeah, I think we, think we covered everything. I think we'll think of more shit later, but. We probably will think of more shit for the rest I of my life. I got my first band practice today. I'm very excited, man. See all the guys today. With all studio. five OG members Tom of the Morris, band. Yeah, Even ex- your brother, yeah, Todd Morris. Ex- Todd Friend flew in last night. Westy too, man. I'm excited, man. Really excited. It's getting down. Like I talked to Al, but I've been having really rough sleep this sleep. Obviously, our conversation yesterday didn't help my mental sleep. But just maybe anxious. Me and Al were talking like we're having rough sleeps this week. Because it's leading up to the first show, you know? Yeah. It's so weird. Like you never think... It's just weird. 16 months. It's fucking, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. You haven't gone that long playing a show in over 25 years. Exactly. Yeah, man. I'm excited, man. I can't wait. Um, all right, Jake. I, I mean, we, we probably won't be hop back on here anymore because I think we did everything. I, I was thinking <laughs> about those things last night that you, we talked about, and yeah. I was kind of shell-shocked myself just digesting everything you told me when you asked me questions about myself. So that, that, that interview yesterday was supposed to be you interviewing me. And we kind of flipped it on each other, and it just turned out to be monumentally magical hey call me and interview me anytime not for the podcast just <laughs> just for fun all right jager thank you brother love you toby love you too brother bye peace hey guys we're back and i'm sorry to bring you back in i was thinking something just now too is that real quick is that 
your your mom is dementia now, so you got your closure with your dad in a sense to where he was like, uh, I believe in you. I was, I'm proud of you. And you got to have that moment of clarity, I guess, with your dad before he died, but not have more time with him that you hadn't had most of your life because of the everything that's happened to you. So with your mom, you I think it's important you try to get some sort of something with her. Even though she has dementia, it's going to be hard to have a real conversation with her before she got, because I don't want you to have any crazy regrets, regardless of all the crazy shit your mom did to you, you already forgave, forgave her, you said, but having that time with her like you had with your dad, that moment, just one moment could change everything for you. It could, but I, but I kind of already had it, and I got it down in Florida, and they gave us a lot of writing assignments down there as part of the therapy, and, and one of them was to write a letter to your mother and write a letter to your father, and the one to my father was two pages long, and we had to read them in group therapy. And the one to my mother was 55 pages long. Wow. Uh, and I went through all the things that, that I was upset about throughout my life. And obviously there was a lot of them. And then I had to read it in group therapy, which was very heavy. And then the assignment after that from the therapist was, now you need to write it again but you need to write it in two pages. You need to say it all in two pages. So I really had to think about it and it took like a week and I did. And then he said, now you need to write a one page letter from your mother. That's what you need to hear from her. Wow. So I did that. And then, you know, those Chinese lanterns that you, you kind of fold out and they're made out of like really thin tissue paper. Yeah. You light a candle in them and they float up to the sky. My therapist sat with me and I wrote that one page letter, what I needed to hear from my mother on the Chinese lantern and then we went out at sunset that like dusk and we lit the candle and then we watched it float away and that was supposed to be me releasing mm. uh, the anger I had towards my mother got you and we did that and Toby ever since then I felt super light about it and I've thought okay. a lot about it and I I did everything I could for her to try to be the good son yeah and I Everything I did wasn't enough, and I just can't open that door again. But I feel a lot lighter from it all. I feel a little sad, but I think the risk of having another conversation with her would just reopen all of those old wounds. Gotcha. And I've kind of got them stitched up, and yeah. I'm, I've made peace with it myself. And that's, that's where I'm at now with that. I totally understand where you're coming from, but yeah. everybody's journey is different. And I'm, I'm pretty satisfied where, with my, where mine is now with my mom. Yeah, I, res I, I respect that. Um, I, I was on, t my grandma pretty much, ra my grandma and grandpa pretty much raised uh, me, mostly. I was spoiled by them with love. And uh, my ma my grandma died while I was on tour in Europe. There was no cell phones back there, and I missed a few, I missed everything, and I'm really bummed about it. I never got to go say goodbye to my grandma properly. And one thing that's definitely fucked up me mentally, uh, probably not speaking for my brothers, but I know, They've been through the same kind of feelings of this is that not having any closure with my dad dying, not being allowed to go to the funeral because my mom didn't want us to see that, not saying goodbye to my dad, not have any of those memories, the closure of that. Um, and I think that's weighed heavy on me and my brothers our whole entire lives um, is not being able to have that, um, just to saying goodbye, you know, and, and not believing that my dad was gone for a, a year or two after that or longer. Like we were so young, you know what I mean? We're like, when's daddy coming home? When's daddy coming home? So, that's probably definitely fucked me up um, mentally.
I'm sure it has. And that, that must have been devastating for your mother to try to raise three young boys and have to explain to them over and over that dad isn't coming back and, yeah. and for her to have to take on both of those roles. But but I've seen firsthand the way you you guys have supported your mother and how you have her out here in L.A. and in your lives. And it must feel good to be able to turn those tables and be able to look after your mother and yeah. have her here now. And I think that's what everybody wants. Yeah. Both parents and kids like parents want their kids to kind of take care of them in their later years and kids want to be able to be there for their parents and be their stability and give them back what what you like what you got from your mother as a kid was that as much stability as she could provide and now you're able to provide that to her and have her come over and be part of max's life yeah and a different so much different respect when you become a parent and realize like oh raising one kid's pretty crazy but raising three boys with no father it's like some superhero shit. You know what I mean? Like looking back on it now, back then you probably don't realize it, but like obviously when you become a dad or just see when you get older and you see, just experience life, like, wow, my mom did that shit. Like roof overhead, food, all that. Regardless how I felt about my mom when she kicked me out, any kind of resentment I had to his mom for any type of way growing up a little bit for certain things, but I still love and appreciate and uh, can't even imagine like how difficult that was. You know what I mean? Like, Sure. And I think your mom was probably doing like, like, I think my mom was trying to do the best she could with all the damage she had gone through. I don't think she, I don't think she ever purposely did things to hurt me. I think she just didn't understand what she was doing. And and obviously your mom did the same thing. And even though she had a shitty boyfriend that was skinning the squirrels and stuff and kicked you out, I think when she kicked you out, she was trying to do what she thought was best for you in that moment. And Mm -hmm. that's all we can hope that our parents did and that, that you can do for for Max, you might look back and say, oh, I wish I did this differently for Max, but you can only make decisions with the information you have at the time and whatever yeah. space you're in. So and that, that, that's why I think it's important to not have regrets and not beat yourself up for thing decisions you, ma- you made in the past, both myself and other people. You know, it's like, yeah, you can only do what you think is right at the time and you can never you can never go back and fix anything. And I heard another quote recently that was like, no amount of regret is going to change the past and no amount of anxiety and worry is going to change tomorrow. So you just got to you got to be in your moment and and use the information and the tools you have in today to make your decisions for today. And then you got to adapt tomorrow and the next day as time moves on and, and your perspective changes. And that's how we're going to end this. And we're not going to come back on. I promise to anybody. But these are some thoughts I'm just having while Jake's here in this emotional past 24 hours. OK, this is it. This is three hours. Hope you guys learn, love, um, uh, connect with all the stories that Jake has been so kindly to share in this podcast, openly through his heart and his soul. Uh, our, our relationship, our friendship has gone to a new level after these past 24 hours. And now Jake makes sense. <laughs> Just keep living. Okay, this is it. We're done. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the One Life One Chance podcast. I appreciate your subscriptions. Please rate, review, spread the word, share it, whatever you can do. I appreciate it so much. I'm having so much fun doing this podcast, and I appreciate all the support. You guys are fucking awesome.